Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 268th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that always endeavors to help our listeners learn our most profitable lessons. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week is, as always, Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, everyone. Good evening, James. Uh, sort of glad to be here and looking forward to sharing all sorts of valuable information with all of you. Our show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today to read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. I think I lost my place. Track your specs, chat on Discord, all that good stuff. I spilled boiling hot oil on myself about half an hour ago, and it is just like sitting here with somebody <laughs> holding a match to my hands the entire time of recording. It is unpleasant and distracting. It's going to be meaner than usual, folks. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at Cool Stuff, Inc. to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. So, Travis, um, assuming you can work through the pain, what is on the agenda this week? You know, the salmon came out really well, though. Mm. Still came out. It was worth Good it. Good salmon is... Uh, it's a thing to behold, that's for sure. Yeah, I gotta tell you, if you've never had sous vide salmon, changes the fish. It's completely different. Uh, yeah, it's good. Uh, segment one, our MTGO Metagame Week interview. We've got double modern challenges and a legacy challenge we're gonna dip into because there's some, uh, some amusing cards floating around in there. Segment two, our top paper removers. We'll run through all the hot specs, hot spikes this week. Uh, there is a theme, it would seem, uh, as well as our top MTGO movers, uh, our top paper cards to watch, a handful of stuff James and I like for the future. And segment four, our topic of the week, magic in uh, 2030. Uh, I guess James is going to share with all of us, myself included, his grand vision. Uh, so looking forward to hearing what that is. I do have some thoughts on where okay. they could go if they had even a shred of digital DNA in their brand. And Fascinating uh, thought experiments, for sure. Um, but let's start here at the top, the MTGO Metagame Week in Review. I guess we'll start with the Modern Challenge from the 18th. And I see first place was taken taken down by Dredge with four copies of Thrilling Discovery in, uh, in the main, which is the red-white sorcery, gain two, then discard two cards, draw three, which is Bizarre Baghdad, uh, if you recall, and basically the same thing. Bizarre Baghdad didn't draw you cards. Uh, or didn't gain you life, but that was the same tax. Was draw two, then discard three. So a two mana spell that does the most, po- the thing that the most powerful land does in Dredge. Apparently worth considering in modern. Yeah, and this makes Dredge rework their whole mana base because they suddenly need to be able to cast red white uh, on turn two. They don't have any mana accelerants in the deck, so this is turn two forward. They get to fool around with this card, but. 
a lot of the dredge decks seem to have transitioned over to it right away. It just goes to show that, you know, we spent a lot of time on set review episodes talking about rares and mythics we think are going to get there over time. But the cards that end up making the, the biggest impact are, are often commons and uncommons that just slot in really well in pre-existing archetypes. Yeah, that is very true. And I mean, it's, it's not the fact that we miss those necessarily. It's the fact that sometimes there's just not a lot to do with it. Um, you know, we could look at, sometimes we look at these cards and I go, well, that card is going to be amazing, but it's a common, you know, there's, there's not a lot I can tell you guys to do with this at the moment, true, right? True to so. an extent, but I definitely did not flag Thrilling Discovery as slotting into Dredge just because of the, the colors and it being a sorcery and two mana and didn't occur to me that they necessarily needed this. And I think that you have to be more in tune with either having played a lot of Dredge yourself or played against it enough in Modern to realize that indeed, that despite the extra color requirements and the slowness of the card relative to the rest of the deck, this this is totally fine so i would imagine that you know given that this is a one trick pony it's you're not going to see this show up across a bunch of different archetypes and it is a common it's going to take some time <laughs> but you might want to put these aside if you're cracking any amount of strixhaven because they could be you know two or three dollar commons down the road if dredge needs it for years mm-hmm. and i am by no means indicating that i saw thrilling discovery and went oh there's a dredge card that's going to make a big difference i don't even think i looked at every common in the set i just meant that okay like you know in general we see sets and we'll see commons and sometimes uncommons and i'll be like oh that seems potent that'll probably get played but i mean again there's nothing you can do I, i'm definitely biased as well to look at mythics and work my way backwards like generally speaking yeah. i'm looking for the next great hinge yeah i mean not, that's just not the next thrilling discovery Right by uh, by virtue of the way the the, the rarities function, it's the way it plays out for us. So next on the on this top eight we have uh, elves, and notable in here we have four elvish war master from Caldheim. There is also uh, three realm walker, uh, likewise from Caldheim. So that's seven uh, copies of elves from that set that have made their way into modern elves. It's a fairly Fairly important footnote and uh, does set up some potential specs given that both the aforementioned elves are also EDH cards. Realm Walker is an odd choice because didn't we determine that was just a worse version of multiple other cards? Well, there's at least one card that Realm Walker just seemed worse than. Right, but the other one is not an elf. The Vizier of the Menagerie was was the card I think we were referring to and that costs four and it's not an elf. Oh, yeah, that's what it was, I think. Which is fair, I suppose, if you're playing a real tribal deck. There is that there is a difference there in that case. Yeah. And in EDH, Vizier is clearly better because the one mana doesn't make a lot of difference in that format. And not having to limit yourself to one creature type does make a big difference. But Remlocker yeah. is still seeing tons of play in EDH because there's been a lot of elf decks built since Cal time anyway. Now, whether that will hold true further down the road has yet to be determined, but given that uh, Realm Walker can slot into a bunch of different decks, doesn't necessarily just have to work with elves, it plays into you know anything that is green and tribal, which does cast a fairly wide net, even if it's not Vizier's ultimate flexibility. 
Yeah, and I I don't remember. I don't think I gave it credit for that. I don't remember if we really touched on that or not at the time that Realmwalker played so much better with tribal strategies and vizier. And I mean, I, but I, I'm pretty sure we acknowledge that even if we looked at it and went, well, look, this is just the worst vizier. I don't, you know, a cage aside from green tribal decks and EDH, I don't know why you'd play this over vizier. We did make the point of saying that can all be true. But if people are playing Realmwalker, the price will go up. It doesn't matter if it's worse than Vizier. If people are putting Realmwalker in their decks, they're eating the supply, and there you go. So it is worth being aware of that in any case. Mm-hmm. Third place, we have Eldrazi Tron. Nothing new, too new or exciting there. Uh, we were having a discussion in the Disc- ProTrader Discord today about what cards could, are modern staples and don't yet have... Uh, fancy premium versions or if maybe they have one from the distant past are well in need of a new one and one of the cards that came up from Eldrazi Tron on my list was Eldrazi Temple which has never had a premium version of any kind yeah you had the pack foils <laughs> yep but that was about or the, and the modern masters foils but that's about that's it. it so if you buy into my claims that Maybe Modern Horizons 2 collector booster boxes are so expensive because they're going to have a slot that gives us fancy versions of existing modern staples that won't be in the main set. That's my current best theory. Um, and there's all sorts of other ways they could go with it. But if that's true, Eldrazi Temple could easily end up there as a premium version. Mm-hmm. Moving right along, fourth place, we have a blue-red spells deck that basically has two Jace the Mind Sculptor, one Ral Is It Visroy four Snapcaster Mage, and two Blood Moon, and then 28 Instants. The uh, Is It slash Prismari decks have got a little help here. I see there's some Prismari command in the main deck, which is just Is It colored uh, Colagon's yep. command. Yep, yep. Uh, and then two Behold the Multiverse from Keldheim, which is another common doing more work than expected outside of Limited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, moving right along, we've got a fifth place build, which is a Grixis take on a spells build. This is three Snapcaster Mage, four Sprite Dragon, four Mistress Bobble, one Unearth, and 25 instants. And since they're in Grixis colors, they have access to things like Cling to Dust, Drown in the Lock, Fatal Push, Coligan's Command, Lightning Bolt, Logic Knot, Thought Scour, etc., very interested here to see Sprite Dragon, which has, whose foils have recently popped on the back, back of the blue-red prowess deck in Modern, making an appearance in a completely different build. I mean, that that's going to put... If Modern actually manages to take hold in LGSs in at least a few countries around the world before the end of the year, those foils, Sprite Dragons, could get real pricey if there's two strong Modern decks that get capable of top-baiting that are running the card. Yeah, the best part about this is the fact that because of the way the Gatherer works, we, every time we talk about this card, we have to look at that awful Godzilla mm-hmm. art because it's the most recent printing. <laughs> I feel inclined to acknowledge it and complain about it every time. It's too. so funny because it's that art is true to the Godzilla legacy in the sense that the, the Dorat art was always wacky. But it's funny because the rest of the Godzilla art from Ikoria uh, showcases is pretty badass actually like very well rendered and and skillfully done and this one is just intentionally wacky and it happens to be the card that sees the most play yeah yeah i mean i like i wasn't it's 
it's kind of comic booky across the Godzilla mm-hmm. stuff, but not in the way that Ikoria was. I felt like Ikoria were more like artwork done in the style of comic books, whereas uh, Godzilla stuff felt more like pulpy, like images pulled from comics. And I don't mean that in a particularly favorable way, but it wasn't, it's not really bad. It just feels kind of a touch hokey, but the Sprite Dragon is just a whole other universe. I mean, you know, if you took the words off of that artwork, you'd think it was a picture from your four-year-old's storybook. Like it's... And I don't do not mean that in a favorable way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Grix's spells, <clears throat> Snapcasters and Sprite Dragons, and nothing but spells. Don't remember seeing a shell like this anytime recently. And they've got a Lurus in the sideboard, of course. Um, so any the longer Lurus goes with it, a reprint, the longer the premium versions are going to climb. Could easily end up being a very very pricey card. <clears throat> um, it's funny that this is in seventh place because fifth, fifth place. I am. Oh, fifth, fifth place. Yes, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, yeah. Uh, I, I was reserving my comment for the seventh place. My mistake. So, sixth place was the John Shadow deck. Nothing super notable here, except they're running three Vanishing Verse, the new point removal from uh, Strixhaven that says would cost white and a black, instant speed, exile, target, monocolored, permanent. This card, you know, we talked about this from an EDH perspective about how, you know, was this going to be worth targeting given that there's so many point removal options in that format. But what I'm seeing here in the early modern results is that tons of decks found room for this card. And if it's a combination of being solid in EDH plus seeing a bunch of modern sideboard play, I'm much more excited about the foil extended arts. Yes, if if it's good enough to be seen significant play in modern, even in the sideboards, you know, if it's hitting a couple different archetypes on top of the EDH demand, that does a lot more work for the card. Well, in, in modern, consider what this hits. You can take out Blood Moons. You can take out Tif- you can take out uh, Narsets. You can take out Jace the Mind Sculptor. You can take out a Tarmogoyf. You know, it's it hits anything that's not monocolored and is a permanent. So. You know, a colored artifact could get targeted with this thing. Now, what you can't take out is the multicolored stuff. But, you know, if you want to kill a Death Shadow or a Monastery Swift Spare or a Scourge of the Skyclaves or a Tarmogoyf or a Hex Drinker in the mirror, this hits everything. Yeah, it, it does not hit every permanent in the format, but it hits but, a lot yeah. of them. And, uh, you know, in EDH, you'll pay the extra mana or maybe two to make sure that you're, you don't have that many targeted removal spells. You want them to get rid of everything that you need to be able to get rid of but in competitive you don't mind playing spells that you know might miss a couple key permanents if they're very uh aggressive on cost for effect well there's a lot of monocolored threats in the format right now like in the blue red prowess build the sprite dragon is multicolored but a lot of the other stuff is is either depending on which build you're talking about because there's a red white prowess build we're about to talk about as well things can be red or white or blue and then occasionally there are some multicolored permanents so the verse can do a lot of work uh, and I'm curious to see mm-hmm. whether it earns this place permanently in multiple modern archetypes. Yeah, it'll, it'll probably end up in the, the melange of various choices because if your deck is only vanishing versus you're just dead to a Teferi, but uh, definitely probably found its spot. So the seventh place build is pretty interesting because I this is the red-white uh, prowess build that steers away from blue in favor of white and that's because they're trying to make use best use of clever luma lumamancer 
It's a one for a zero one. Human wizard at a Strixhaven magecraft. Whenever you cast a, or copy an instant or sorcery spell, it gets plus two plus two until end of turn. So it's basically step links, but instead of triggering on landfall, it triggers on instants and sorceries. It yeah, it's also uh... oh crud! I was just looking at the card. Monastery Swift Spear. It's the same idea except better. Because Monastery Swift Spear gets 1-1 one, one on a non-creature spell, and Club Illuminaster gets 2, essentially. Yep. And Soulscar Ma- so Soul Mage and Swift Spear have been doing well in that blue-red deck, so as soon as they saw Illuminaster, they're thinking to themselves, well, it starts down 1 power, but for everything I cast, it gains... On the first one, it gets up plus 1, and then on the next one, it's up a full plus 2. So... Yeah. This deck is basically yeah. running two Abbot of Carol Keep, four Clever Lumomancer, uh, four Monastery Swift Spear, four Soul Scar Mage, three Karash Through, three Light at the Stage, two Boros Charm, four Lava Dart, four Lightning Bolt, Metamorphose, and Mutagenic Growth, and Mishra's Bubble. All fours. Yeah. And what I was started to say earlier was it's funny you said that because I am literally packaging a Mutagenic Growth that I sold today. And I guarantee you it was because of this deck. Sounds about right. And again, Lurus of the Dream Den in the sideboard because the only permanents in this deck cost one or two mana. This is a good deck for Lurus because it, the deck is already right there. They don't have to do anything to make Lurus work. It's just a free card. Yeah, they, can, they can bolt your they... first creature and then Vanishing Verse your second one, but then you play Lurus and start bringing them back and they got to deal with it all over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I would not be surprised to see this deck be pretty competitive. Uh, they have a lot of tools. I mean, Clever Luminancer and Soul Scar Mage and Monastery Swift Spear are all very redundant. And Clever Luminancer is actually much more potent than either of them. Um, it doesn't have haste uh, or the other, it doesn't have haste like Swift Spear or the other effect like Soul Scar Mage does, but Clever Luminancer kills faster. I think it, what is it? If you use Clever Luminancer and then Mutagenic Growth, Mutagenic Growth. Lava Dirt. Was it, yeah, there was like one more spell. You basically have to play three spells. Oh, no, no. Clever Luminancer, Mutagenic Growth, Mutagenic Growth, Teamer Battle Rage is lethal. Because mutagenic growths are plus four, plus four. Yeah, it's odd that they don't so, run Teamer Battle Rage in this build. Oh, he doesn't have it in here, yeah. does he? Oh, that's odd because that you'd figure make Clever Luminancer lethal so fast. Because yeah. because if you Lava Dart Sack Mountain Lava Dart plus a couple mutagenic growths or a Metamorphose, you're up. That Luminancer is swinging for eight. Teamer Battle Rage is is going to double that, right? Six sixteen, yeah. and they it, they they sacked and fetched a shock twice. Yeah. It, I mean, you can play Clever Luminancer on turn one, and your opponent's looking down at their hand going, okay, well, do I get to live past turn two? Like, can I put this ta- this land in the play tapped <laughs> and pass? Like, what am I allowed to do? Because it's, there's so many permutations that allow them to just kill me, especially with team or battle rages. Um, I mean, if you get Mutagenic Growth and Monomorphos and Mishra's Baubles, that's 12 free spells, essentially. Um so Team or Battle Rage gets lethal real quick. Uh, int- it, I, I'm a little surprised that I don't see it, and I'm kind of curious if we'll go that route. Maybe it's a little too all-in, but uh, I, I do think this deck probably has legs because Luminancer is a powerful card. There's also four or five viable 
aggro decks, three of which have these prowess characteristics um, in modern right now. So your sideboard against these decks has to be has to catch as many of them as possible. It's it's not like back in the day where like where aggro burn might have been the only aggro deck you needed to deal with. Um, speaking of which, the more traditional Boros burn, uh, Eidolon of the Great Vivel, uh, Revel, uh, Goblin Guide, Monastery Swift Spear, with a bunch of sorceries and instants that deal damage, was an 8th place for the Modern Challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, moving over to the Modern Challenge the very next day on the 19th, you got additional spice. This first place deck. Boy, oh boy. Spicy. It's 5 color Bring Delight. There's no Niv-Mizzets to be found. It's Scape Shift, but there's no Primeval Titans to be found. This deck is 3 Teferi Time Raveler, 4 Dryad of the Elysian Grove, 4 Elvish Reclaimer. That's a card I flagged in the Discord today, because back in October I called it on cast to go foils to go 9, nine to 20. Currently they're about 15. I called them again in the Discord to go 15 to 40 this year. This card is doing so much work in Modern, Legacy, and EDH. There's no way that this single printing foil from a summer set isn't going to get there. What is uh what does he look like in EDH right now? Pretty good. Elvish Reclaimer, right? Yeah, it's uh uh 7600 decks. That is pretty potent. Yep. 3% of all green decks since he was printed. And probably underplayed, really. The card does... Being able to go get your best land in an EDH deck means searching up Cradle. And yeah, there's a reason crop rotation is so yeah. good. So anyway, and so expensive. back to deck. 3 Teferi Time Raveler, 4 Dryad of the Elysian Grove, 4 Elvish Recla- Reclaimer, an Omnath, a Valky God of Lies, 4 Bring Delight, 2 Cleansing Wildfire, 2 Scape Shift, 1 Supreme Verdict, 3 Lightning Bolt, 4 Remand. This is just like taking a modern binder and shaking it and seeing what cards fall on the table. And then 31 land. This is, yeah, this is amusing. I'm, he, he, he's got a lot going on here. Uh, the Elvish Reclaimers are like kind of curious because I'm trying to figure out how you turn him well, on. Well, you, you go quick enough well you're you're using your uh your combination of fetches and cycling lands to get enough lands in the graveyard and then you start going to get valakuts yeah i mean you have three missyrian forests and three windswept heaths they can all like he's not he's not going to be turned on that fast but they can also that they can also use cleansing wildfire on their own flagstones of trocara right Yes, if he manages to set that up, yeah. Uh, and I was, I saw the cleansing wildfire, and I was trying to figure out if you would shoot your own lands with it. Um, maybe, of course, Elvish Reclaimer lets you sacrifice lands as you go. I mean, when you're looking at the what you call it from the other deck, uh, the clever Luminancer possibly being able to kill you on turn two, spending your turn two to sacrifice a land to go get a Flagstones feels way less uh, reasonable. But if you're not playing against that deck, it does seem like that's going to get real obnoxious for your opponents real fast. Yeah, but there's, there's, there's some real cutie stuff here. So when you destroy a Flagstones, you don't go get one land, a Plains, based on the Flagstones text. You go get two lands. Because le- right. Cleansing Wildfire lets you go get a basic, and the Flagstones says a Plains. Well, here's the thing. The Tri-Lands, Rogren, Savai, and 
not Ketria, but Rogren and, and Savai can be fetched up off the flagstones. And they get they get to put that tri land into the battlefield tapped, plus they go get an additional basic, presumably a mountain, so that later if they're doing Valakut things, Valak or even if Valakut's already in play, whenever a mountain enters the battlefield under your control. So that lets the flagstones dying go get two mountains and immediately deal six under a Valakut. Yeah, it's the flag zones is a pretty gross card. I'm very familiar with it. Uh, I've played it in a variety of modern combo decks over the years because it does goofy stuff. Uh, a fun, fun little setup here, no doubt. So, yeah, the, I wouldn't even know what I was playing against if I saw this. If I was tr- trying to, if I ran into this deck, I would be making assumptions that would prove to be false. the The other cute thing is in the sideboard, they've got the Madcap Experiment into Platinum Imperion combo out of nowhere. But only one madcap experiment. <laughs> because they could because they, they actually have five because they have the bring delight to cast it. Yeah, I guess that's true. You Yeah, you put the one madcap in your deck and then you pay five mana for bring delight. That's why they can also run two scape shift instead of the full four, because the bring delights make it six scape shifts. Yeah, this is, uh, this is amusing, doing all sorts of fun stuff When here. I see decks like this, I'm like, yeah, I just, I'm just not even mediocre in this format. I'm miles behind the people that are really putting the thought into what's going on. <laughs> it's funny because I see stuff like this and I'm like, this probably isn't all, if, if you were just showing this to me and didn't tell me what set it was in or didn't tell me what place it was in, I'd be like, probably not that good, but I bet it's fun to play. So this looks like the type of crap I would dream up. Back in my heyday of brewing nonsense. I'm going to go with, you could leave me and some monkeys in a room for a good year and we wouldn't come up with this deck. But <laughs> good for you. The second place list in this uh, Modern Challenge on the 19th is a black-white taxes list that I have is similar to a deck I had built a few years ago with some of the with some newer cards involved. Charming Prince, three elite spellbinder. This is the debut of the Paulo Vito uh, Dama de Rosa World Championship card. Uh, this is the 3-1 flyer from Strixhaven for 2 and a white. When it enters the battlefield, look at target opponent's hand. You get to exile an on-land card from it, and then for as long as it remains exiled, the owner can play it, but they have to pay 2 more to cast it. And that effect lasts even if you get rid of the Spellbinder. So it's dropping a permanent tax on that card to get played. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a nifty card, and it looks like it's doing some work there, and PV's get getting his face out there. It's it's a it's nifty. I, I, I as I understand it, there's a lot of trickiness to this card that may not be apparent on the surface. Well, one of the cute things you can do with it in this deck is use Charming Prince or Flicker Wisp to do it over and over again, and just shred mm-hmm. your opponent's hand. They also yep. have the three uh, obligatory Skyclave Apparition, which is. Seems to be true of most white decks in both modern and legacy at this point. Cards also good in EDH, so foil extended arts of those will dry up. And sleeping on any of that for more than a little while is just ignoring the obvious. Like in a year or so, you're going to wish you had bought these somewhere between November and and May of 2020 to 2021. Yeah, those Skyclave apparitions are looking better and better. Stoneforge Mystics, foil borderless treatment out of the VIPs from Double Masters, very likely to take off. 
sometime shortly. Fourth Alia Garden, Guardian of Thraben, those special copies from Secret Layers have been on the move lately. Four Tide Hollow Sculler, uh, one of the reasons they're in black here. And then three Wasteland Strangler. When Strangler enters the battlefield, you may put a card an opponent owns from exile into that player's graveyard. If you do, target creature gets minus three, minus three until end of turn. Well, isn't that fancy with Elite Spellbinder? You polo their card into exile, then you follow up with the Strangler if they haven't had a chance to cast it yet and get rid of it permanently. And then you get to flicker yeah. either the Strangler or the Spellbinder to keep that action rolling. The uh, the Wasteland Strangler, Strangler tech was very yeah. hot when yeah, that came yeah, out. Yeah. People were finding all sorts of stuff to break with it. But Elite Spellbinder is yet another cute way to make that work. Mm-hmm. That's something else. And uh, also, I have to mention, it's funny, while you were reading the cards out, for this deck, including the Thalia Guardians of Thraben, I got an email that I just sold a grip of the WMCQ Thalias, which, by the way, are by far the best Thalias, and I will hear nothing to the contrary. You like it better than all of the art in the Secret Layers? Really? Have you looked at all four of those arts lately? I I will go look, but let me take a look here. Uh, Yes, absolutely. The WMCQ one is still the best art. It, you know why? Because it is the furthest from typical magic artwork. It does something different, and I really like that. It's not to say that the secret layer arts are bad. It's just they're all, I don't know. They're all a woman with a sword. Well, I mean, so is the one you're talking about, but it's a close-up. <laughs> but sure. Yeah, but it's... It's it's yeah I I, I it, that's really cool I love that art. All right, fair enough. It, it's solid for sure, and they they seem to be forever in abundance when they first came out, but they they have slowly dried up over time. Also worth flagging for this deck: four bright climb pathway, black white pathway being played as a four of in modern here. Mm hmm. That's uh, all of those are still probably worth poking around. Uh, I haven't looked too closely, but. Still worth thinking about. I, I want to point out that when I talk about cards that I've sold recently, it's not because I'm like, oh, I want everyone to know how smart I was to buy Thalia's. I'm not. Those Thalia's have been sitting in my collection for like six years. I, it was not that smart of a play. I, well, I think my reasoning was solid at the time, but that's beside the point. The reason I tell you guys is to say, hey, you know this card we're talking about in this deck? Well, people are buying it. Like, I can give you first-hand experience. Like, this card has been sitting here forever, and suddenly I'm selling it. People are buying cards for this deck. But it's interesting that we now have two modern decks where I am selling paper cards for them. So people are buying cards for these modern decks. You know, I'm disappointed to know that people are playing modern in paper, but it would seem they are. <laughs> well, or they're just getting ready to, right? It, I mean, if yeah. you're involved in Magic the Hobby and you can't go do the gathering portion... Some people are just going to go, well, whatever. I probably can't play this deck for several months, but I'm bored, so I'm just going to build it. The Yeah, I, I'm not willing to believe that that's the case. <laughs> I wish that were true. The I mean, tons of people are buying EDH cards without, without playing EDH on webcam. That's for sure. For sure, for sure. Yeah. The, um, so we have, a, as you know, a, a channel in our Discord that's called Sales Data Reporting. And it's basically just humble brags where people list what they sold stuff for and what they got in on it at which is 
serves both to demonstrate their financial prowess, but also gives people valuable information about whether they should be taking a look at selling their own inventory. And I am frequently accused of only posting my best sales in there because the results tend to look pretty good. Um, the reality is I'm just I'm just posting the flow of information as I have time to do so. But I was forced to post an embarrassing one today where I lost a few dollars for once on two, I think it was either GP promo or WMCQ promo all is dust from a few years back that, that mm-hmm. I acquired at pretty much what I sold them for because I had listed them uh, when they were plentiful. And as I sold them, I was like, oh no, did those spike? And I went and looked on TCG Player, and indeed, they are about $70 to $90 now. And I think my eBay listing was out of date at about 35 mm. So I got wrecked. But tell you how the, the Pro Trader Discord works out in your favor, even when you make a misstep. Somebody immediately chimed in and said, yeah, but over in Europe, you can replace them for $15. Well, so we all, so a bunch of us did. <laughs> This was the GP promo all is dust you're saying? There's one for sale right now on TCG Player for $24. Is it a near near mint copy? Yeah. One copy at $24 and one copy at $150. And that's all that's left? I'm willing to bet that that $15 could could be a store that's turned off or something. Mm. He has uh, 110 sales with, it would seem, a 0% rating. Yeah, so probably been... Oh, but these are all 5 out of 5. I don't know why. That's probably being it's left not. there on the basis of the 0%. But yeah, there's since this afternoon then, since we talked about it in the Discord, there's basically nothing left there, um, which, isn't, which is funny because they really should have been buying in Europe, not here, but all right. <laughs> um, okay, this is neither here nor there, but I'm poking around and I'm going to ask a question while I'm thinking about it. The Strixhaven Mystical Archives. There are foils and etched foils. Is that correct? Yes. So have you seen on TCG Player the etched foils? Mm, yes. Okay, but I, I, I'm not challenged. Like, I'm asking because I can find, for instance, right now I'm looking at the Japanese art the Japanese Brainstorm Mystical Archive, mm-hmm. and I see foil listings, but I don't see any comments for etched So foils. if you just type in Brainstorm at the top, you're, I think 8th or ninth down the list, you'll find the foil etched. The problem here is that TCG s- has a hierarchy that does not always include special versions when you say just type Brainstorm and get results. Oh, they're the ones without artwork. And they're on the second page. That's why I missed mm-hmm. it. Interesting. Yeah, so TCG is missing their artwork for those currently. Um, but yeah, this has been a, a source of constant misstepping during discussions in the Discord for weeks where not everyone is up to speed on all of the different versions. They come to check in. They probably get it wrong. Somebody corrects them, and then we all move on, and then we have the same conversation again six hours later. Um, did people decide they like the foil etched less than the normal foil? it's not that they like it less it's just as so, so much as it is it's too subtle to be noticeable in sleeve i think if you double sleeve them or god forbid do what i do and triple sleeve your edh decks vis-a-vis a top loader you're just not going to be able to pick up on the etching because it's that subtle <laughs> 
Did anyone post a photo of the etch art etch foil Japanese cards? Because I know that the English mystical archive foil etched have it on the border, yeah. but the Japanese ones don't have a yeah, border. Yeah, the Japanese ones are much more subtle. It's basically just like around the interior text box. <laughs> it's huh. it's a spot a spot uh treatment that is very subtle indeed. And the interesting thing is that the market because Wizards came out of the gate saying the foil etched is the big deal here. This is the stuff you can only get in the collector booster boxes. The market had priced the foil etched as though it would be the rarest. But the reality is that the foil sets take twice as many boxes of collector booster boxes to uh, create a full set out of as the foil etched do just because of how the slots work in the collector booster box packs. And while it is true that you can get foil versions of the uh, mystical archives in both regular booster boxes and set booster boxes it takes way more boxes like like a tremendous amount more to get complete sets so the fact that those add additional foil copies probably doesn't matter much it's really about the formulation of the collector booster boxes that is likely to lead the market and so we just did a big group buy on full sets of japanese foil uh mystical archives japanese foil etched mystical archives english foil mystical archives and english foil etched mystical archives and we actually priced the japanese foil sets above the etch sets well that that's what i'm noticing as i'm browsing tcg player that the non-etched japanese are more than the etched foils and probably for just that reason you don't even know that the etched ones are foil it's also worth noting that the only way you can get the japanese art in non-foil is via the set booster boxes and collector booster boxes so i'm sorry set booster boxes and regular booster boxes regular booster boxes have 36 packs in japanese and 18 of them will be the alternate art non-foil so if you wanted like a full playset of uh, alternate art Inquisition of Kozilex, that's where those are coming from. And that's why Wizards made sure there was some amount of Japanese set booster boxes available to re, uh, through distribution in the U.S. But a lot of that has flowed through Amazon and gotten bitten off by bots early on. And the set booster boxes are consequently going for 160 to 170 for the Japanese set booster boxes. Um, we did our group by closer to 135 and it's gonna be it's gonna be tricky if like war of the spark japanese boxes they continue to put out the set booster boxes and waves they should get back down to normal set booster box price and you should see them in the market from like 110 to 130 uh, by mid late summer but if they don't go another way to do that then japanese set booster boxes could be very pricey down the road well these these japanese all art cards are really impressive yes. really impressive like top i mean the ikoria stuff was also very good i think it's a toss-up between the strixhaven and ikoria for best all arts like what else this is the i'm sorry the ikoria and the japanese strixhaven because what else was there there was something else that was pretty good maybe i'm just thinking of the english mystical archives I I don't know. The Japanese ones are fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the, the Cal Time uh, showcase art's pretty good. 
the Eldraine yeah. showcases are nice. They they're like well on theme. Um, I'd also the one I went targeting after while everybody was looking left and I was working right this weekend was foil Russian mystical archives because that uses the global art as do all the languages that are not Japanese. But in Russian, there are no collector booster boxes. So there's only the global art. And you can only get them out of Russian booster boxes and set, and, and set booster boxes. Wait. Mm. I'm not actually sure off the top of my head if there are Russian set booster boxes, but it doesn't really make any difference. The key point is that without there being collector booster boxes, the Russian... Uh, Foil Mystical Archives, which would already be quite rare, are, like, drastically more rare. Because the Collector Booster Boxes is the is the is by far the biggest font of the Mystical Archive foils, period. There are also no foil-etched Russian, because there are no Collector Booster Boxes. So I was picking up, like, Foil Russian Regrowth at $9. Foil Russian Village Rights seven or eight dollars foil russian defiant strike five bucks foil russian manatide eight bucks foil russian cultivate card is absolutely stunning here let me show you i'm actually looking are you i'm looking at cultivate right now actually yeah yeah that is that is nifty looking for sure and i mean this this stuff is being put up by like there's five guys in ukraine and russia and belarus that sell regularly on on eBay, maybe ten total. And you know they they're putting up some pretty silly prices too. Like they're putting up tainted packed at four hundred dollars, and and <laughs> daring the legacy and CDH players to do something about it. But like foil Russian putrefy at ten dollars, hard to imagine imagine going wrong when there, there might be total in market. 50 100 250 copies not total produced that's that's still a little more than that but not a lot more and keep because keep in mind this is a fairly big subset and again you don't you don't get the foils all that often in boxes yeah that those are uh, those are very nifty i will give it that for sure i do like that uh that one you just posted that was at the putrefy Put- right putrefy yeah so I've been I've been focusing on the ones that are like are their cross format demi like semi staples or true EDH staples, and if I can where I can snap off things like lightning bolt. I think I missed a lightning bolt. Somebody, I think the first person to post it last Friday at a Russia posted a lightning bolt at twenty eight or something, and I had it in my cart and I was building the cart out and then I refreshed the cart and it was gone and I and I haven't seen another bolt go up since. Hmm. But I mean mm-hmm. foil Russian masterpiece essentially lightning bolt <laughs> uh yeah worth more than 25 dollars for sure <laughs> but i mean even like lightning helix is certainly a played card still in in modern and picking those up at 18 still felt confident yeah that russian stuff is uh is wild and there's, and there's just stuff. a lot of good cards. Like, there's a few stinkers in, in the Mystical Archives, but a lot of it is is quality, multi-format play, cute, good for cube play. art. And the thing is that the focus has largely been on the Japanese art, because it's amazing. But 
some of this global art is quite good and there are a couple of situations where i think the global art is actually superior to the japanese art in, this, in a few of the situations where the japanese art is especially anime influenced and very just looks like a frame out of a, a manga some of the global art is is just of higher overall quality yeah i would agree for the mo the 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 japanese i think on average is better but there are definitely outliers yeah so i i, I would expect strixhaven products of all stripes to be one of the most likely targets for sealed product growth two to three years out it could easily end up being like war of the spark where we have an initial uh, initial huge spike of interest some stuff gets very pricey. Then they put out additional waves over time, and it ends up being very cheap. And you can get the you know those set booster boxes come down to a very reasonable level. At which point, I want to do you know we'll be looking to do another group buy and rack up some cases because if it ends up like war, where about a year and a half to two years out, it takes off. Like we did a war group buy last summer, which was basically a year after release at ninety six dollars a box on war, and I've been selling war last couple months for two thirty five. That's a standard booster box that more than doubled within a couple of years after release. That's mm -hmm. that's where you want to be. <laughs> and and Strixhaven has a lot going for it between you know the various options for the mystical archives and being a set that I think is going to be probably underrated at first and end up being a mid-tier set in terms of constructed and EDH applications. But you don't need you don't need the set to be super amazing as long as it's not a dragon's maze. Given that you have the mystical archives to lean on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're gonna be. It's gonna be like an entire set of uh, uh, voice resurgence, where like voice resurgence was forty five dollars because every other card in this set was useless. Um, and in this case, you have all the mystical archives that can do work for you, but at the same time, they're all like pretty rare. So it's like you end up with like, okay, well, every card that isn't a mystical archive in this box is pointless. So all of those cards have to carry all the value. Hmm. All right. So finishing up this modern challenge in third place, we have green, white creature combo, pretty, uh, well understood archetype at this point, frequently top aiding dredge with the four thrilling discovery again in fourth. And then this next one was like, oh, you guys think you're spicy? Hold my beer. This thing is insanity. Four Hedron Crab, four Jace Vrin's Prodigy, four Glimpse the Unthinkable. What are we playing? Probably some kind of mill deck, right? Well, sort of. You're playing four Storm Herald alongside one Battle Mastery, four Eldrazi conscrip Conscription, two Prodigious Growth, uh... So you got the whole Storm Herald combo going on where you're trying to dump a bunch of these ridiculous creature enchantments into your graveyard. Then you want to Storm Herald, pull them all out, put them on your creatures and attack. Hedron Crabs are, are presumably dumping your own stuff into the graveyard. You have four Jacefren's Prodigy that's doing the same. And you've got a Stinkweed Imp so that you can dredge stuff into your yard. Call of the Death Dweller lets you bring back Storm Herald and put a Death Touch and Menace Counter on it so that you can then put all the other stuff on. And Storm Herald has haste, by the way. So if you call the Death Dweller your Storm Herald and then put a Conscription on it, you get to attack right away. <laughs> and they need two blockers, and it kills whatever blocks. 
There is some wild stuff going on here, yeah. for sure. <laughs> to- this is... I, I have also played Decks in Modern before where I tried the Chi Eldrazi Conscription on the creatures. I played the Sovereign's Conscription deck uh, when that was legal and standard. Sure. Sovereign's of Alara? Mm-hmm. Yep. Sovereign's of your daughter. Yeah. For, for Glimpse the Unthinkable was mentioned already, but two Inquisition of Kozlek, two Thoughtseize, two Thoughtseize uh, and four Unearth. I wonder if you're targeting yourself with the Inquisitions and Thoughtseizes. No, you're not. That's your protection. Your Thoughtseizes and your Inquisitions are clearing the uh, removal or disruption from your opponent's hand. But you have the option. So you had, you do, and I'm sure it's not to say that it will never happen, um, but that probably doesn't come up too often unless you are... You'd have to basically be very cleared for landing, but have a Eldrazi Conscription in your hand and none of your graveyard, and be like, okay, I just need... To get this card in my graveyard, and then I can attack and kill them. Yeah, you got you got to get the vanishing verse out of their hand since Storm Herald's a monocolor card, right? But having played enough decks of this stripe before, the those the four discard cards are just just to keep your opponent off balance long enough to stick your Storm Herald and then swing with a massive Hedron Crab, and the Hedron Crab is absolutely targeting yourself too. Four collective brutality is just like mm, Chef's kiss in here because the Escalate on brutality is discard a card, so it's already doing what you want to do. And then it's yeah. I'm actually surprised that there isn't more uh, use of self discard effects. Like this deck almost seems like you could put the um, oh, it's not legal, is it? I was gonna say the smog combo in, but it's not legal in modern because mm-hmm. smog. You could leg- legitimately target yourself with smog because you want to discard cards, but also have the backdoor to just combo them out. But can't play it. I mean, don't worry. We're going to get to the chain of smog shortly. The yeah. so yeah, this is this is a wild, wild deck, uh, and I would love for this to take off because I'd like to see Storm Herald Extended Arts make money. I'd like to see Jace Friends Prodigy back on the agenda. I don't have any Eldrazi Conscription lying around anymore, but certainly wouldn't mind seeing Foil Unearths from Modern Horizon suddenly take off. Uh, I, when you first see a deck like this, you have to just write it off as an oddity. So I'm very curious to see whether it'll keep showing up. Yes. Yeah, it, it that's wild. I I have a feeling that it probably would go through quite a bit of uh, some revisions here. But these numbers all seem fairly particular. I think if I were going to pick anything, it's probably the Glimpse the Unthinkable. I bet that's the weak link here. Between the Hadron Crabs and the Collective Brutalities, um, the it Charms... You don't need a lot of ways to get rid of cards. You just need a little bit of action, the Jaces. And those four glimpses being something else to disrupt your opponent or provide some defense would probably be pretty effective. I'd be curious to know what the uh, pilot had to say. So finishing off this top eight, we've got Jun Shadow in sixth, another Dredge deck in seventh, and then Yog Moth combo, the green-black combo uh, that leverages minus one, minus one counters. Um on creatures like uh, Giraffes, Messenger, etc. Got a Hapastra in there, for Eldritch Evolution, for Court of Calling. This has been uh, a resurgent deck as of late. Not the first time we've seen it top eight in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to slide on over to Legacy instead of Pioneer this week, just to take a look and see what's happening over there. I got curious about whether... 
uh, cards from recent sets had been breaking into the legacy landscape. And sure enough, we got some pretty interesting inclusions here. First place in the Legacy Challenge from April 18th on Magic Online was a Lands deck, another deck that runs the Elvish Reclaimers I was talking about earlier. Um, and they also run three Valakut Exploration out of uh, Zendikar Rising. This is a three and a two and a red enchantment, Landfall. Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, exile the top card of your library, you may play that card for as long as it remains exiled. At the beginning of your end step, if there are cards exiled with Valakut Exploration, put them into their owner's graveyard, then Valakut Exploration deals that much damage to each opponent. This is not a card I expected to see in Legacy. Uh, I <laughs> I wouldn't have expected it either. We definitely talked about this card being pretty potent. Yep. It's, a, it's a good EGH card. I did not see it as a Legacy card. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't have either, but between... In this type of deck, it does give you a lot of draw. It's 34 lands in the deck, and the deck is constantly putting lands into play, so you're getting the triggers a lot. Yeah, it's it's surprising that I wouldn't have never would I wouldn't have expected it, but I'm not too surprised to see it. If that makes sense, once you see it in context, sure. But a great example of a card I would not have flagged as being being necessary here. Um, very interesting. So it's if uh, if Legacy was more popular, we could get Lawrence on here to talk about it. He would have all sorts of interesting insight for us, but it's just generally so relevant that it's hardly worth it. Rug Delver in second place with three Ethereal Forager, a card that people have had their eye on uh, as it has made inroads into the format. Uh, Blue White Miracles or uh, White blue miracles in third miracles. miracles. Uh, Bug Delver in fourth, and this is where the chain of smog comes in. Four Wither Bloom Apprentice. This is the nasty Magecraft card that combos with Chain of Smog. Whenever you cast or copy an instant or sorcery spell, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So if you have the apprentice out and you chain of smog, you win the game. Yep. That sure is how that works. So here we go. Combo seemed janky, but fourth place in a legacy challenge, not to be uh, coughed at, and I'm certainly not in any rush to discount my foil chain of smog I found sitting around. It's, uh, it works. I, I'm not, I'm not terribly surprised to see it. it. Basically because I think Witherbloom Apprentice is like kind of borderline playable anyways. Um, you know, you can put that in the play at two mana and then untap and brainstorm, fetch, then ponder, then abrupt decay something, and you just got three triggers. So you just lightning bolted them and picked up three life. So just the magecraft trigger on that alone is, you know, probably would, it wouldn't have been enough to put into legacy as it is, but it's a very decent bit of gravy in as part of your infinite your instant kill combo yeah it's interesting that they don't go for the full four and four um i would presume that's because the wither bloom apprentice does work when you don't have chain of smog but not the reverse right yep all right so rug delver in fifth uh similar to the one that was in second this one running two ethereal forager instead of three and then this next one boy what a spicy week this is 
Bergy God of Storytelling combo. Let's go back and read Bergy for people who aren't up to speed. Like, from I have to admit, this name is very bad. <laughs> it's awkward. Um, Bergy God of Storytelling from Caltime. Two and a red. Three, three. Whenever you cast a spell, add red mana to your mana pool. Until end of turn, you don't lose this mana as steps and phases end. Creatures you control can boast twice during each of your turns rather than once, which is absolutely pointless in this context because you're not, there's no boast creatures in your deck and there never will be. The flip side of Bergy, I don't think comes up very often in this, in this deck, but it lets you, it's a legendary artifact for four and a red. Discard a card, exile the top two cards of your library, you may play those cards this turn. Maybe the first time you hit a Bergy, you're playing it normal and later you play the flip side. Not 100% clear. I'd have to watch the deck play out. But they also run four Burning Wish, one Echo of Eons, four Ignite the Future. This is a Commander 2019 card. And I haven't looked, but I would would not be surprised to see it being under some amount of pressure this week based on this, as far as I know, first appearance in Legacy. Um, This is a sorcery for three and a red. Exile the top three cards of your library. Until the end of your next turn, you may play those cards. If the spell was cast from a graveyard... You may play those cards without paying their mana cost. Except the flashback on it is 8. Do you see 4 mana sorceries with flashback 8 and go, Hey, 4 of in Legacy, obviously. <laughs> it's, uh... It's because it's... You, you would never... You, you, unless you are a Legacy Storm player, you, this would never hit your radar. But I'm looking at it and it's like, Okay, this is essentially kind of like Past in Flames, except a little different because when you cast this for its flashback you flip the top three and then you're you know you're casting like jessica's wills and other ignite the futures and monomorphoses and stuff for free when you have a bunch of the rest of the deck is probably where the artifacts are worth mentioning to explain how some of these spells are just free off that three chrome mox yeah. three defense grid four lion's eye diamond four lotus petal and four ruby medallion give you a bunch of fast mana and discounts on your red spells. Then you've got four Jeska's Will. Already went through a spike, being a Commander Legends foil extended art that went from something like $7 to 30 overnight when people started talking about it on Command Zone and in other places as being a hot new red staple for the format. Now you see it as a four of in Legacy. Those foil extended arts are going to be $80 plus in a year, if this holds true. Jessica's Will gives you a red for each card and target opponent's hand, uh, <laughs> or exile the top three cards of your library, you may play them this turn. You can do both if you have a commander, but that's not going to be relevant in Legacy. And then you've got four Rite of Flame, four Manamorphos, and four Seething Song to give you your fast red mana. You've also got four Ancient Tomb and two City of Traders in your land base. So you, <clears throat> when you start... When you consider all of that and go back to Ignite the Future, it's more like a two casting cost card than a four. Yeah, I mean, you can miss and hit lands, which is a bummer, but the deck runs 13 lands. So for the most most part, you're, uh, you're just hitting mana generators. There's also some pretty interesting stuff on the sideboard here. Appear into the Abyss. That's a seven mana spell that has three black in the casting cost. Uh, you yeah. got a Shatter Skull Smashing. <laughs> You've got two Chandra Awakened Inferno out of M20. 
Yeah, these these decks always have some fun sideboard options. These like kind of fast mana decks who can afford to play kind of these like four and five mana cards that you normally would never expect to see. Because uh, like if they can manage to resolve them against the decks they need them to, it doesn't matter if it takes them three turns, four turns to rebuild because your opponent can't do anything if they're good against who they're supposed to be good against. Well, the Chandra Awaken Inferno must be especially fun to cast because that's a six loyalty planeswalker that cannot be countered. In Legacy, that's a pretty big deal. And then the plus two is... That takes it to eight loyalty, by the way. Each opponent gets an emblem with at the beginning of your upkeep, the emblem deals one damage to you. <laughs> so it's a sense of inevitability against the blue decks. Yeah, I mean, you bring that in against like Rug or something like that. They're not countering your fast mana because they're expecting to counter whatever you play with it. And then you cast Chandra and they can't do anything about it. And you immediately give them that emblem and their Tarmogoyf can't kill it. Well, and her and, and her minus like, well, three is deals three damage to each non-elemental creature, which wipe, yeah, wipes all the delvers off. The wipes board. rugs board. <sighs> yeah, that's a cute one. So yeah, Man, this deck is pretty cool. We are an hour into this cast and in segment one. <laughs> <laughs> Lots to talk about this week. Seventh and eighth place are death and taxes builds with three uh, skyclave apparition and a bunch of your beloved Thalia's. And yeah, modern legacy looking real cute right now mm-hmm. all right so we can move right along here to sure top does. paper movers which uh, fortunately for you from a timing perspective is could have been a massive list but i cut out the plethora hundreds of old border foils that people have been snapping up just random stuff if it was a foil printed in the first 10 years of magic people have probably been going after it lately because apparently they've decided yeah. that with Old Border Foils being a, you know, annual theme or whatever it's going to be with things like Time Spiral Remastered, that the focus on Old Border Foils will gain and grow. And I'm, I'm not sure I'm buying into this. Like, everybody's going to feel the need to build, like, to a- accumulate Old Border Foils just because they're Old Border Foils. But I guess people feel differently. I... I, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I, I don't think most people are going to get burned by it. It could take forever before they get their money back and maybe, maybe they lose five or 10%, but it just, it feels for the most part so safe that like people don't care. And, and the upside is like, oh, maybe this card I paid $9 for will be worth 45 bucks. My advice along these lines is focus on stuff that's actually playable in old border. Like the original printing is a cool old border. Something like crop rotation comes up on this list this week. I'd rather pay $125 for a crop rotation than for some random rare from 8th edition. For like, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Shardless Agent, uh, Eternal Masters, Foils, 14 to 20. That's on the back of an assumed reprint in Modern Horizons 2 coming. Crop rotation, Urza's Legacy, 125 to 190 something. That's a Land's Legacy card, as we just saw. It's the original printing. Those are never going down again. Sky Diamond from 7th edition, Foils from 62 to 95. It's a solid mana rock that they very infrequently reprint. Uh, Through the Breach, Amonkhet Invocation, 30 to 48. That's Invocation's pressure we've been seeing for months. Dwarven Blast Miner out of Onslaught, foils from 11 to 18. That's uh, Dwarves for the Magda engine. Bonecrusher Giant foils from uh, Showcase, foils from Throne of Eldraine. We talked about last week uh, about how Bonecrusher Giant was increasingly showing up in Modern. Uh, didn't show up in top eights that we reviewed this week, but the foils still moved from seven to twelve. 
<sighs> what else you got? <laughs> You're getting through them there. Was that Bone Crusher Giant that you finished on? Right? It was, yeah. <laughs> you just blew through them so fast trying to keep track. Sylvan Scrying out of Mirrodin. Uh, the foils here, 9 to 16. This is the original printing of Sylvan Scrying, which Memory Service may has a couple reprints. Modern Masters, is that right? It's got an F&M promo. Yeah. We just got it as a time spiral remastered. Old Border Foil. Uh, it was in Zendikar. It was in Battle for Zendikar, Zendikar, 10th edition, and Mystery Booster. Yeah, so this is people buying these just because it's the original, not because it's good, because every other version of this card is better. Uh, Nubemagus Elemental, a long-term, long-time uh, fan favorite from Return the Ravnica. Uh, Jerry T. famously was big on this, and people tried to make this work at a Pro Tour, if memory serves me. I don't remember if they were successful or not. Uh, three to like 550 or so for just about a double up. This is, I'm sure, in part of the uh, Clever Luminancer package because it does something similar. It's a one mana that pumps a lot when you play spells so the clever luminancer build that we looked at earlier did not have new magus but i'm willing to bet you could go find lists that include both of them toxin sliver out of out of legends i'm sorry not legends legions uh foils again 40 to 80 this is just part of that sliver thing we've been talking about for a while now is uh, is this the one cliff complained about that hadn't gone up yet i know there was one he was cranky that he owned that hadn't gone up in price i don't remember if it was this one not sure but yeah, I mean, all the slivers have been targeted lately. And basically, if they weren't involved in being reprinted in Time Spiral Remastered, then people went after them. Yeah. Although I, I noticed that the uh, Sliver Premium Deck Series Muscle Slivers are still like $2. That just cannot be right. That foiling treatment's not great, but that's a muscle sliver you included in every sliver deck, and it hasn't had a reprint in a while. Oh, they're so bad, man. <laughs> they're so bad. <laughs> uh thran quarries out of urza's saga uh the non-foils here 10 to 20 i got nothing for you here uh i think there's a promo foil of thran yeah that one Quarry, moved too that, mo- that one moved too yeah i uh, i don't know why people are buying this card just because it's urza's saga oh it's a jss card that's what it is well no i think it's just that they haven't foil. printed this card in forever the thran yeah. well it's thran not quarry has only been in urza saga and the junior super series promo and that's it yeah, and it's the it's not good. Um, it, it's I, good I if you're in a like go wide creature strategy in EDH and you are multicolor because it will most of the time never get turned off. It's in six hundred decks. Yeah, and, <laughs> but no, but I don't, but I don't buy that because the board is going to get wrath more. Sure, than but once. in in those kind of decks, you can usually like make uh, make tokens at instant speed or in response, or you have a permanent that makes tokens. So you can usually make sure the turn doesn't end before you have a creature back on board. But I don't know. The fact that there are 600 ED, 600 listed decks on EDH, right? Lends credence to my theory that the card is bad in EDH and most people don't. Well, the, the, the use case I just described is extremely niche. It's it's not like I'm claiming that's a common scenario in EDH. (laughs) Uh, in any case, I've yeah, just Urza Saga card, I guess. That's why we're talking about it. And finishing off the week with fourth Force Spike, not fourth Spike, Force Spike. Think Luke Skywalker. Seventh edition foils, 16 to 45 for just about a triple up there. Uh, the color shifted monetize, essentially, uh, or, or reverse. Um, I once my story with this card is I once had somebody force spike my turn one soul ring in cube <laughs> and I left and never went back to that house. 
That sounds like you. Moving over to the top. That's that's not true, but I remember it 15 years later. Top, top <laughs> magic online movers. Uh, Jessica's will on the back of that legacy deck, moving from 19 to 25 tickets or so for about 30% gains. Vanishing verse at a Strix. Uh, started pretty early in at around 2 or $3 and is up to over 7 on the back of pretty broad modern sideboard play, I'd imagine. Elite spy, Spellbinder, of course, being tested in those red-white prowess builds. So it went from about two tickets to six, 180%, 7% gains. Both Vanishing Burst and Elite Spellbinder have to get pushed down real hard as drafting continues. So they are shorting targets. And the top mover here of the week, Prismari Command, went from like six or eight tickets early on to almost 40 tickets. That's the hardest uh, short target I've seen in a while. Like, there's no way a rare from Strixhaven can hold that price. It's got to crash, crash, crash. You should be able to get pretty good money on the short. Like, that should come from come down from 40 tickets within a couple of weeks to it's, ah, sub-15 for sure, maybe sub-10. There's some mm. decent money to be made on a playset there, like maybe 100 bucks. Well, good, good luck uh, to everyone out there going for it. Paper cards to watch this week. We got some good ones. Um, I like Elvish Warmaster Foil Extended Arts out of Keldheim. Uh, collector booster boxes. I don't think there was tremendous around a, amount of hype around those collector booster boxes. I don't think so many of them were opened in comparison to, say, Zendikar Rising, which had the Expeditions, or Strixhaven that has the Mystical Archives. The uh, showcases and the... The hype around that set seems to be a lull in the middle of those two grander sets. And the Warmaster is a four of in a modern deck that we just saw top eight here. And it is showing up in a whole bunch of elves uh, decks in EDH. In fact, 5% of all green decks uh, on EDH Rex since Elvish Warmaster was released in Kaldheim have included the card. I would expect that percentage to fall over time because it's, it's elf related. But Warmaster's going from the current price of $7 to $20 in, say, 12 months seems very reasonable to me. Yeah, the uh, I agree that the collector's boosters here are kind of uh, almost a blind spot. I haven't heard a lot, a lot of discussion about the Kaltime collector's boosters, so I would agree with you there. They probably undersold a little bit. The, the effect on this is also quite potent, um, and that overrun ability that's not quite overrun but is basically free is going to be quite useful in competitive decks that need a way to turn their little elf ball into some sort of uh killing swing um i i do know that the elf from what is it strixhaven or something like that oh wait hold on i wrote this down uh lathril is very popular this week second most built in the last week so definitely that's part of the action here and so i definitely agree that you will see elvish warmaster fade a little bit as we get further away from that but that just means that the rate the rate of inclusion will decline but it'll still be getting used i mean people do build elf decks in edh regularly and this card will be in every single one of them so seven bucks for the extended art foils i'm I'm definitely on board. That seems good. And I think like you're right in that ballpark of 15 to 20 is a good exit. Alrighty. How about your first selection? Do you notice how confident we are this week? I'm feeling confident. This is, this is by far the highest confidence level we have had. It is nines down the line. I I don't put nine. Have we ever had a 10? 
I don't think I've uh, ever written down a 10 before. A couple of 10s. I've had a few, like, something like Judge Foil Rustic Study. I probably put, okay. I probably should have put a 10 on. Maybe I put a 9, but it should have been a 10. Yeah. I mean, I mean uh, Masterpiece Soul Ring sh- surely should have been a 10. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, hindsight's 2020, right? Um, $4,000, as it were. Yeah. Uh, did you know 2020 is actually not perfect vision? 2020 is actually average. Uh what it means is that you see objects that are 20 feet away as if they are 20 feet away. So if you have above average eyesight, you have like 1320 vision. So like 1320 means, or 2013 visions means you see things that are 20 feet away with the acuity of something that is 13 feet away. Yeah. I have better than 2020 vision, or at least I, I did last time it was checked. I, I've yeah. spent enough time in uh, in front of a monitor that I'm sure my short vision will fail shortly. I it's funny you said that because I took uh, tests. I used to travel for work and was in a lot of um, hospitals and doctors' offices, and I took one of the tests where you you know you read the eye chart at the end of the hallway and clocked like a fifteen twenty, and I was like, well, that seems unlikely, and I ended up at a. Uh, an ophthalmologist's office and they had like a real eye acuity test and i'm like yeah all right let's find out what my eyesight is and it turned out to be 1320 and i was like wow that's even better that's unbelievable that was like seven years ago so i am sure i am don't have that anymore but i enjoyed it while i had it uh every now and then while i'm out with my friends or when i used to go out with my friends and we're someplace in like a food court or something like that. I'll pick a sign on the border of my vision and see if anyone else can read it. <laughs> and that's how I that's how I gauge myself. Is like, okay, I, I'm gonna find a sign I can read. Who among us can read it? Am I the only one? Um, it was a an amusing and unnecessary diversion. My first card of the week is uh, Felden of the Third Cane. Uh, this is one of the Time Spiral remastered OBFs, old border foils. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are about 40 bucks right now, but I, I don't believe that like no way, no way is this card going to be $40. Uh, Felden of the third cane is played in about 10,000 decks. He's not a terribly popular commander, uh, but he's very popular as an inclusion in pretty much any red based artifact deck. 10,000 seems uh, on the low side from what I would expect, honestly, but still pretty good numbers. Um, we're seeing him pop up a little bit again recently because of Ozgear, the Boros legend that duplicate, you know, exiles artifacts and makes tokens type of thing. Felden works very well there, but definitely a, a mainstay in the format, whether or not you're playing Ozgear, but these times file remastered foils are so rare and we're not getting a reload on them in any meaningful capacity. So you'll pay 40 bucks for them, which is going to hurt a little bit on the front end, but I think you'll be able to sell them for close to a hundred dollars. I think pretty much any playable type of old border foil is destined for close to triple digits. And some of them might be this year. Some of them might be next year or two years from now, but with the supply looking like it does, uh, hard to imagine any useful card of this name, any useful foil remastered card being cheap. Yeah, so while you were saying that, I went ahead and added some copies into my cart over in Europe where they are less than $30 each. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. I mean, Time Spell Remastered, we are past the hype cycle. We're already on to Strixhaven, and pretty, in three weeks we'll be on the Modern Horizons 2 hype cycle. So 
very there's not a ton more of this getting opened especially since the boxes are can easily be flipped by retailers at uh, a strong price point there are 21 results left on tcg player nobody's got more than three copies in stock europe is 10 to 15 bucks cheaper but that's not going to last very long either the inventory is not super deep there says to me yes you should definitely be buying this card cool uh what else you got for us uh my next one is yogmoth thran physician time spiral remastered old border non-foil the foils are already very pricey i think the cheapest you can get them for is about 200 dollars in europe so nah, not as exciting to me uh, to be in that scenario but we can get the uh, non-foils in Europe around 12 bucks, And inventory is pretty deep on the non-foils, like much, much deeper than the foils. There's less of rush. But Yagmoth is a four of in modern. It's a great EDH card. It's in 10,000 EDH rec decks. Um, they've just given us a reprint, so it's unlikely to see another anytime soon. And give that a full 12 months, maybe 18 months, and I think 12 to 25 or 30 is very likely <clears throat> and this is just to clarify the time spiral remastered old border non-foil yeah <clears throat> the card is very cool the card works so well in that old border especially because it's a very old character um you know we're talking yogmoth we're going way back here um, the true original villain of of Magic, and probably the most interesting villain Magic has had. Uh, I mean, if we're talking about the European European buys, then it's it's pretty easy because you're so well positioned against the market. But I agree that you know the attrition rate on these is going to be very favorable for you. And if it's not this year, um, I mean, there's not again, there's not really going to be a reload anytime soon. So these seem like they will work out very well for you at some point in the future. Yep, agreed. What's your next one? Uh, this one I like even more than Felden. Uh, Beast Whisperer, which I'm pretty confident, reasonably confident, we have talked about at some point in the past in some capacity. Beast Whisperer is at four mana, two, three. Whenever you cast a creature, draw a card. Just as, you know, it's glimpsy and thinkable. He's an elf, which is very helpful, um, which is what pinged him on my radar was because of the Lathril, which is the... I, like I said, on your other Swarmaster, that new elf commander that people are building right now. Um, but Beast Whisper is in 33,000 EDH rec decks. Uh, very highly played, like top, what, the, the top 10 or something green card, top 15, definitely top 10 creature, I think. Uh, also about $40 right now on the low end. Um, I see a copy for 39. Um, and then they, you know, they climb from there. It's about 30 vendors. I think there's about, uh, for the record, Felden had 20 vendors. Beast Whisperer has 30. Uh, Beast Whisperer has been a little tricky because they had a bunch, they had promos of it. Um, there was a Guilds of Ravnica, like, I think, was, yeah, Guilds of Ravnica. There was like a, not only, there was like a resale promo. I think that was at like Walmart or Target or something like that. But it put a lot of foil copies into the market and it was just a rare. So you had the pack foil of rares and this promo that showed up at Walmart and the Planeswalker promo pack um, and the pre-release foil. So the normal version of this card had a lot of inventory out there that it just kind of was was tempting, but there was just too much supply to, to really dig into. But that's not gonna be true of these, these, these uh, remastered foils. Um, so 
you know, again, you're paying 40 bucks for them. The card is unbelievably popular in EDH. Uh, I think at 100 to 100 to 120 bucks. Also, I don't know if it's this year, but it's got to be coming, right? Like, in what universe is this not? Yeah, so over in Europe, I just put six in my cart at 158 euro, all in. uh, Wait, wait, you put, wait, say that again, you put how many in for how much? Six copies, 158 euros, that's going to work out to about 32 US a piece. So that's the potential savings over there. I'm making you all sorts of money today, huh? Thank you, appreciate it, as always. Possibly. (laughs) No, I think think this one's rock solid, I mean, there's, there's no debating that the card sees tons of play it's a very valid point that there are uh it has a bunch of different printings already but this is arguably the best of them i think people will prefer uh and i think this is a kind of a new or unique thing people will prefer the old border foil printing to original printing for cards that are relatively modern anyway like i don't think the original beast whisperer foil will ever outrank the obf well, I mean, just based on supply, there's no possible way. But even if you didn't have this, even if the supply was a little more reasonable, where it didn't have like the Walmart promo and the other ones, it was just, you know, the pack foil of the modern border and this. Yeah, I, I think, I, I guess this feels like apples, I, this feels like apples to oranges regardless, because the old border copies are all in such short supply compared to the modern border of any two cards you could pick that why wouldn't the old border one be more expensive? I mean, you've got it probably what two to three magnitudes of difference of supply. So although we're also worth flagging that though there are those cheap copies in Europe, there's not that many of them. 15, 20, 25 copies get hoovered up and this is going to be 40 euros plus on MCM mm. at, because there just wasn't that much time spiral crack. Yeah. Um, first of all, these aren't like this whole concept premise set, et cetera, wasn't particularly popular in Europe and is more of a, a North American thing. I was picking up Japanese foils of the beast whisperer, uh, on some of my preferred sites in Japan last week at less than 20 us. <laughs> There's mm. just no way that's not going to get there. Mm-hmm. Because vir- virtually there was virtually no distribution for foreign time spiral in North America. It wasn't something that went through distribution. There was no Japanese time spiral distributed in the U.S. the way that they're doing with Strixhaven set boosters. So if you can get even better price than English on some of these Japanese things that aren't particularly wordy, like this is just whenever you cast a creature spell, draw a card. You don't need to read it. You'll memorize it. Yeah, and everyone playing EDH is going to be familiar with with this card, given the prevalence yeah, of it. Yeah, so I've, I've done about four to 5,000 US in carts in Japan on EDH-flavored old border foils in English and Japanese that were just way too cheap. And, you know, the English price, like if you're calling this for TCG at 40, seems fine. If you're getting it in Europe, closer to 30, even better. If you're getting them in Japan, closer to 20, that's your best. Yep. All right, moving right along here, I've got Mystic Reflection Foil Extended Art. And this has been on my radar to add to cast for a while, but I know that at least two or three different pro traders have brought it up as their selection of the week uh, in the last six weeks or so, so no specific credit to them, but I, you know, 
I, I didn't steal it from you. This has always been on my watch list. I just you, just you just have to wait for four people to all send you the same card, and then you don't have to give any of them the 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 twenty five dollar gift certificate, and you can claim it as your own. I mean, with hundreds of people in the, in the Pro Trader Discord <laughs> and dozens of submissions per week, there's going to be some overlap for sure. Hey, I didn't say it was a bad idea. Uh, Mystic Reflection Foil Extended Art. Credit due to the Pro Traders that have also mentioned it and discussed it in the in the Discord. Uh, 10 to 25 seems very, very reasonable for a card that is very unique and is going in 11% of blue decks since it was printed. Um, this thing does cool stuff. You get to hide it from your hand with Fortel for one. So you can set up the thing in a way that people can't really mess with unless they counter it later. And then on any some specific turn, somewhere in the game, something's going to come up, either because your deck is built around doing such things or because you're leveraging the wide op, you know, potentiality of facing three other EDH players uh, in a random pod. You're going to choose target non-legendary creature. And when that creature... When next time one or more creatures enters the battlefield this turn, they enter as copies of the chosen creature. So you're targeting for one blue off Fortel, the best thing on the table, and then you're going to put a bunch of tokens into play and turn them into that thing. And do something crazy. Sorry, I wasn't sure if you were waiting for me to respond there or not. It's, it's, just a, it's a unique effect. It does work. It's seeing lots of play easy breezy foil extended art to get there given that again we don't think cal time collector boosters were particularly deeply opened yeah you and i had been talking about this uh, when we first talked about the card in the cal time review yeah. it like grazed our awareness but we didn't get too far into it and then i think when we returned to it when it was jason whoever was on the cast and i was like oh you know this really does some work um this card is very good and it may end up being a victim of being too cute or clever um, or at least not that it's too cute or clever to, to play, but like people might not quite get it, but I mean, you're, we've got 11% since release. It seems like it's really been taken up here. Like people are on board and ready to play with it, which is a very strong um, starting point. So, I mean, if you're getting the extended art foils for 10 bucks, that's, pretty solid for a card that's already seen this level of play so i can definitely see this getting into the 25 to 35 range highest per, highest um, percentage penetration in edh for Kaldheim cards is the world tree 50 percent of five color decks run it so those five mm-hmm. foil extended arts are, are a no-brainer then it's six lands in a row the combination of snow duels and flip pathways and then you've got essica raven form Tosky Bearer of Secrets, and then it's Mystic Reflection. Mystic Reflection, 2,400 decks. And then Bergy, God of Storytelling, mentioned earlier, at 2,281. The, uh, the, like, the five-color land doesn't even feel, it's not not even the same thing. It's just, it's it's not in the same ballpark. Like, every single five-color deck should play that. Like, if it's anyone who's not in that 50% is basically just wrong, so... Or they don't own it yet. Yeah, right. I mean, that's what it comes down to. So yeah, I, I think this is a very good choice. And this call time stuff has sort of fallen off my radar too, but I should really double back and check my sources and see if any of them are floating around because I would like to, to pick some of that stuff up. 
all right, I'm gonna finish off with the one that got me browsing uh, some of this, the Strixhaven Japanese art stuff that I had mentioned at the top of the cast, which is uh, D-Spark. Um, you can currently get the Japanese all art, the Japanese art foil mystical archives of D-Spark, which is a very cool art, uh, for 10 bucks. There are seven vendors with copies of this. Uh, now these are technically pre-ordered, uh, at least on TCG Player. I don't at the moment have a terribly strong sense of where prices will go during pre, you know, as the next week or so, three weeks unfolds. I expect there to be a reasonable addition of supply, but I also expect it to be pretty front loaded on the Japanese stuff, especially. So like you'll get a dump of supply early and then it, I think that'll be about it. Uh, what I like about these is you're going to pay $10 for these Japanese foils. And then like it's 10 bucks. Like even if the supply doubles, how cheap is this card going to be? Is it going to be $5? Like who cares? Like if you pay overpaid a little bit, this card is in 24,000 EDA truck decks. Uh, it's a very popular card and the art is awesome. And you know, unless James knows something I don't about the inventory, I think these are all real tasty and I would love to buy these at 10 and sell them at 20 to $30, uh, a little bit down the road. It's by the way, very popular in Timna, the, the, the fate weaver or something like that. One of the original partners who, I don't know if EDA truck changed their, um, reporting on partner cards recently. I wish we had Jay strong cause I'm, I'm curious about this, but I notice all of a sudden, if you go to commanders and look at the top commanders, uh, I'm seeing more partners than I did in the past, um, Timna and Thrasios in particular. And at this point in time, Timna, the weaver, Timna, the weaver, like fate weaver, but weaver is the most popular commander of the last week, the last month and the second most of the last two years, which I'm pretty sure was not true when I looked at this website last week, but I think they tweaked it um, because the numbers seem to work out. I think now it includes every single car, other partner she's included with. So it's like, she, you know, this week she's got 362 decks. She wasn't paired with Thrasios 362 times, but different combinations using Timna have shown up. But uh, I mean, that makes this essentially one of the second most popular commander of the last two years, if that's accurate. Um, so cards that are good in there are definitely appealing. The interesting thing about D-Spark is that it's good in both the global art and the Japanese. From a distance, the Japanese art just looks like a blob, but up close, whoa boy, that is sick art. In both cases, it depicts... Uh, Nicobolas being defeated um, or battling. And it looks good in both versions of the foil. Now, yeah, those foils being posted at $10, that's got to be wrong long term. And they might get even cheaper. Like this weekend's going to be wild as the market tries to figure out how they're supposed to be pricing all the different variants from the Mystical Archives. And when you have something this complicated, vendors are going to make mistakes. Now, so are MTG financiers. <laughs> some people are going to buy stuff at the wrong price. Uh, and some vendors are going to price things totally wrong. So we'll see. It's going to be very interesting to see if the etch stuff stays above the foils longer term. The foils are much more dramatic in person. The etch stuff looks better on the English global art stuff than it does on the Japanese, in my opinion. But it's hard to say. 
I mean, from a Japanese perspective, given their procedural nature, I could very easily see them pricing the etched stuff above the foil permanently on the basis that it is the supposedly the most desirable. Very curious to see if they are going to reverse course and put foils above etched. Uh, but I, I'll say this for the two-year horizon. It's all going to be gone. English foil, English foil etched, Japanese foil, Japanese foil etched, and Japanese non-foil are all going to be real hard to find two to three years out. There are going to be so many opportunities to make money on Mystical Archives, it's not even funny. So what is your um, your read on the incoming supply on the Japanese stuff? Because the set booster boxes are going to be relatively common in the U.S., similar to Japanese War of the Spark, um, where LGS level, they got some allocation, especially if they were bigger stores, not necessarily a ton, nowhere near the amount they got of you know English product. Um, and ja- you know the Japanese set booster box is likely to be present on Amazon for months and months, and the bots will not target them forever. Like, for instance, if retail, if they are out there to the extent in three to six months that the retail price falls back towards normal set booster box levels, then the bots won't be targeting them for quick flips on Amazon, and pretty much anybody will be able to get them at that point at whatever normal price for set booster boxes is, 110 to 130, I'd guess. Um, and then it becomes very, I think it's going to end up like War of the Spark, where those boxes were very plentiful for, for about a year, sub or near $100. And then a year or two out, they're probably going to be some of the priciest standard boxes in history, just like War, because they carry stuff in them that is much more valuable than your average standard box. That also goes for something like Zendikar Rising, right? Like, you get four um, expeditions in a collector booster box, two foil, two non-foil. In the regular Zendikar Rising booster box, uh, you only get one expedition, if I'm not mistaken. But you do get, that is on top of all the other cards in the box. And, and eventually, those expeditions are going to gain enough ground that those boxes are going to be real, real interesting if you can get them sub $90 or whatever. Okay. So you like... You generally like the outlay here, even if it's not around the corner. I think Wizards has done a very good job of putting standard sealed product back into play. Especially for the armchair speculator that doesn't necessarily need a quick flip to cover their overhead on by doing things like uh box toppers and mystical archives okay you know like a a standard booster box that you can pull an expedition prismatic vista out of is no joke compared to say dragon's maze you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. like we're just in a completely different era now and yeah and the and because the the stuff being on offer is varied enough. You know, people said, oh, a premium era, it's just going to be too much. There's going to be too many versions of everything and none of them will be worth anything. <laughs> That's funny. The opposite has been true. Mo- you get take something like a Mana Crypt and within five years, you print a whole bunch of different versions of it and they're all worth a ridiculous amount of money. And if you look yeah. at something like a Zendikar Rising booster box, it's got some a bunch of cool lands in it. If you look at Strixhaven, it's got a bunch of cool instants and sorceries. 
they're a totally different thing. And they can keep playing with those themes for a good long time, given how many new cards they're producing every year. It's, uh, okay. Because I'm, I'm currently shopping around the, the Japanese pre-order arts. And I was curious. I mean, I think I'm willing to dabble on some of that stuff now and then just evaluate on a week-by-week basis in terms of singles. Like, keep in mind that the, the only singles deal we've done so far was full sets. So TCG mm. posted pricing this weekend for foil-etched Japanese was something like $3,700. Our group buy on that for the pro trader discord was let me bring it up uh 799 wait hold on read those two numbers back to me again it was like 3700 dollars us for a full set of japanese foil etched our group buy was 799 because oh because 25 percent because the discussion with the vendor was the the EV of collector booster boxes is currently over $600. That's absurd. It has to come down under 200. Otherwise they get cracked infinitely. So we're going to pr- have to price this deal accordingly. So will those prices come down 55, 70 or 90%? No one knows for sure. This is a pretty w- unique formulation yet again. And that's what keeps keeping the market off balance and keeping it interesting. But we did we did offer the foil sets uh, at nine ninety nine, so that's a reversal of how the market the rest of the market is currently handling it, where they're underpricing the foils and overpricing the etched. It was two hundred bucks cheaper to get an etched set of the Japanese foils because it takes twice as many collector booster boxes to find a full foil set based on how the formulation works. Twice as Twice as many etched foils as there are normal foils. Yeah. So basically the, the vendor was only able to provide one full foil set for every two foil etch sets because of the way the formulation works. The, the foil etched are intended to be at a higher drop rate uh, because the foil mystical ar- Japanese mystical archives share a slot with other options, but the etched foil etched do not. There's a foil etched rare mythic slot and a foil etched uncommon slot dedicated. So there's just more of them. Okay. Hmm. So our prediction so far is that, the f- and and also, and then add on top of that, the foils look better. They're, they're well, much yeah, more that's, flashy. That's what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm experiencing as I browse through, uh, whatchamacallit here, the, um, and Rod's asking you at the top of the episode about the etched art and what have you, because the pricing that I'm seeing is that the etched are more expensive in several cases, but like <clears throat> if the normal foil is better than the etched, it seems like that'll turn around eventually. So just to, just to go back to this, let me just throw you the, the reference graphic so we can make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, one second. Boom. There you go. If we're going to the collecting Strixhaven article on the mothership. The- oh God! This I looked at. I looked at this picture and said, 
I'm like, fuck you, wizards. I'm not reading this bullshit. <laughs> like, this is so aggravating to look sure, at. Sure, but let's, let's simplify it. The first two slots are guaranteed foil etched. The third slot can be Mystical Archive, Japanese or not. I mean, Japanese alt art or global. It can be borderless or extended art, rare or mythic, which is basically saying that the foil extended arts are sharing a slot with the foil Japanese alt art. And that's why there is more etch than there is foil. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. I mean, when you when it's written out like that. So it makes sense. If the foils are both better looking in person and there's less of them, they should overtake the foil etched. That's the theory okay. we're working with. And so, despite our, you know, our attractive pricing on the sets, we priced the etched below the foils. Now, yeah, it'll be I very mean, interesting it, to see how that plays out over time. Because when we did the same kind of thing with the expeditions in the fall, the non-foil sets gained ground faster, looked like a better deal three months out, and gained ground faster overall than the foil sets of the expeditions because so many of the Zendikar Rising expeditions were cracked in foil in the CBs, but you couldn't get foils in regular booster boxes. And there was so much less of the regular booster boxes cracked that the non-foil expeditions were actually harder to come by. And an argument can be made that in some cases they are more desirable because for competitive play purposes, you don't want something that is foil and can curl. So say a non-foil prismatic vista or a fetch land for a certain audience is just a better card anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, very curious to see where those set values land in one month, three months, six months, and beyond. Uh, but I can tell you that I think Mystical Archives is going to be a home run, especially in the mid to long term. Well, I just blew through quite a bit of credit on Japanese mystical archives. We'll see how that plays out. But my thinking is, even if the prices dip in the near term, uh, I still think that's well, fine. it's possible you can simplify your life if you don't have a lot of time to research all that stuff and just buy a foil Japanese demonic tutor when it ever gets to whatever its low is within the next couple of weeks because it's a surefire home run the art's amazing the card is a uber staple s tier staple in edh uh it's never going to be any worse this is probably going to be the best version of it that ever exists or very close to it and it's a future 500 hundred dollar card i have zero doubt in my mind zero doubt well it's currently uh wait let me pull it back up the japanese non-etched is uh 370 for the foils right now yeah. Now it's going to get pushed down this weekend because we're we're recording on Tuesday and and the day that uh, most stores can post inventory is Friday this week. So this weekend you're going to see that come down, down, down in Europe as well because Demonic Tutor is not a big card over there. And then we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> there there will be an entry point there that if you just want to throw if you want to throw money at this stuff and you want to keep it simple, that's probably your target get that at whatever the lowest point is and just wait for it to double yeah yeah uh okay 
All right, so our... Good, good, good talk on that. So now to actually get to our... Oh, yeah, our listener pick before we get to the actual topic this was of the actually, week. We got, you guys got a bonus topic of the week in the middle of the show here about the Strixhaven boosters. Pro Trader Selection of the Week. This is actually from last week, but I pulled it forward because it uh, makes a lot of sense in the context of what we saw in Legacy today. Uh, Bergy got a storytelling foil showcase. It's a four of in a Legacy deck that may or may not get, get anywhere, but it's also an 11% of all red EDH decks since release. Currently get that foil showcase at $8. Uh, currently on TCG, there's only 42 uh, listings, and nobody has more than four or five copies, and the ramp is real steep. Like, gets up to 15 bucks in a hurry. I think calling this to go 8 to 20 especially if you're picking them up in Europe where they're even, you know, even cheaper than on TCG Player, it's going to get there. Yeah, this is a unique card. It's got cool cool art and showcase version, and whether it's Legacy or EDH or a combination of both, give it a year, it'll be fine. That's um, a lot more EDH decks than I would have anticipated. Yep. Eight bucks for the foil extent showcase art. Yeah. Well, especially heading into Strixhaven. Strixhaven as a spells matters set following up on Bergy is pretty cool. Because if you're building Prismari stuff, this spring and summer for Commander, Bergy probably makes that list. If you're looking to fire off a bunch of is it can trips, Bergy's gonna do some work. Yeah. Like every red cantrip mm-hmm. you fire off is just free because it replaces its mana. Yep. Yep. So yep. it's a nifty card. It's a nifty card. Uh, Ticks a bunch of boxes. I think it's a solid pick. So that was Astro Titan, relatively new pro trader that has claimed the $25 gift certificate from Cool Stuff Inc. Good job, Astro Titan. Yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at the card here and trying to think about it. it it's a... A touch one notey in EDH, but I think it'll still be fine. In fact, I could see putting this in my Zada deck because that usually plays a bit like a combo deck and wants to go off on one turn and being able to recycle all that mana would be very Well, here's the thing, though. I wasn't confident that the flip side gets played in Legacy, but in EDH, it's a completely different matter. That's a legendary artifact that says uh, every turn turn, you get to look at two cards, right? Yeah. And you're going to select one that is... No, it's you can discard a card yeah. to exile the top two, and you can play them though this turn. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> that's pretty strong value in a format where that could come out as early as turn two or three. Yeah, yeah, it's nifty. And and, I, and that really widens the net because even if your if your deck isn't a cantrippy, is it build? You could still find reasons to be running this in a red deck just to be drawing cards in the mid game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is totally a fine way to kind of recycle a little bit. So any card that like legitimately has two different cards, one on each side, is certainly a wider opportunity. And that's not always the case. Sometimes your flip cards do, do things that interlock or, you know, something like the flip lands from Zendikar Rising. The fact that they make mana is, is not the thing. The thing is that they could be a land or this other thing, but that doesn't widen the decks that they can go into. In the case, case right. of Bergy, it does. Yeah, I, I yeah, that's that's an accurate assessment. It, it, you kind of open the door to what you can get away with in this. You get two distinct play patterns that makes it useful in more than one place. Yep, yep. 
okay. So why don't you go ahead and tell me all about what you think magic should look like in 10 years? I don't think this is what I think magic should look like in 10 years. If we're calling this segment Magic 2030, and it's according to me, it's more about, I was trying to reconcile in my head where all this digital NFT plus collectible stuff is going, and how it might intelligently apply to a brand like Magic. And what I came up with is that if you have a couple of key technology elements in place and fully dialed, Magic the brand could get real, real interesting from the perspective of digital collectibles. So you're familiar with the product Google Glass that was Google was making a big deal out of and then kind of retired quietly? Yeah, the glasses that you had on that had sort of like a augmented reality component. Right. Eventually, they're going to fix that. The problem they were having with that was that a lot of people would just be nauseous or it would like they would bonk into poles and whatever. Yeah. Not a surprise. Virtual reality has been a struggle for years. Um, you know, you go back to like the movie Lawnmower Man in the 90s mm-hmm. or whatever and forward and everyone's always been trying to make virtual reality the next huge thing. Now, argument can be made that in the gaming world at least we're getting pretty close. Like we're the, the most recent Oculus Uh, equipment is pretty good you can play some cool games and you give it another five to ten years and they will figure out the augmented reality thing that's just that's a certainty in my mind they they will figure it there's so much to be gained (laughs) down that path that the products will hit the market i feel like they've they kind of already they've already got it I mean, like it, it, you know, I played Alex, which we chatted about a little bit before, but like that was my recent experience with VR and like it worked. It did what it's supposed to do. And sure. But that's, that's reality replacement. I'm talking about Uber portable solutions that are augmented reality. You're still, you're still, you're you're still, you're still interacting with the real world, but you have digital overlays and it's safe. It doesn't make people nauseous. It's probably not for everybody and it's not for every generation, but it is a functional, widely used tool. So it starts with that assumption that that will eventually be fixed. Now, if that's true, what would you then look to do with Magic if you are a product manager trying to adapt the brand to live in that world? And I think the answer is that you start to merge digital and paper Magic, which could eventually mean the end of paper magic in paper the potential replacement is that you still you can still have the gathering you can still have lgs's and big tournaments but you just have these um depending on the technology you might have a special play mat that interacts with the google glass style technology or the technology might not require that at all it might just require uh, a solid color surface or something. Um, and then what you have is that your digital assets are entirely portable for both online and in-person play. So when you're interfacing with whatever your version of a, is of a laptop at that point, 
or uh, a computer or a, a mobile device, you're playing it very much as, as you would on Arena. If VR is a big component of the gaming world at that point, you're at home on your, you know, the fancy rig that you've got in your gaming dungeon. Um, where maybe you're like casting spells in three dimensions and battling other mages and like you're you're actually summoning Paulo Vita Dama de Rosa to hover above you and like r- fly over and grab somebody's spell out of the air like that's certainly the end game for VR magic okay I don't like okay that. but it's pro- but <laughs> that, but that kind like. of shit's for sure gonna happen like do you think D- there's not gonna be virtual reality D and D at some point that's gonna be massive oh that makes sense. I'm just talking about having the the people on this, you know, real players showing. You don't want you don't have to look, look at LSV's crotch as he hovers in the air beside you. I guarantee you, this cast does not need me talking about my opinions about all that. <laughs> so <laughs> that's one option. Then you leave the house and you're going to go to your L, whatever your version of a local gaming store looks like at that point. And you know, I believe the best versions of those business models are include beer and food and a variety of retail opportunities. And, you know, they're going to be selling, you'll still be selling some physical merchandise like t-shirts and other shit like that. And, but a lot of the gaming is probably edging further and further towards virtual. And with something like magic, if you've got strong Google gas, augmented reality technology, your deck is just carried in software. Your collection is carried in software. And when you and your opponent are looking at the table, you can see, based on connecting with that player's account, you can see the deck that they're playing on the table, you can see the deck that you're playing on the table, but in an augmented sense. Now, everybody else at the LGS also has the same technology, and if I'm going to buy to watch your game against, you know, Samantha, I can stand looking over you and Samantha's table, tune into your game, and watch it in real time in my glass. If I've got to go, but I want to see the outcome of that game, or I'm interested in being able to analyze those decks later, I can just store that with probably like some kind of subverbal command. And as I'm going home on the bus, I can I can watch the rest of your game play out in real time. Or store it and analyze it later. I can break down the decks. I can go through the cards. I can rebuild the deck out of my existing collection. I can probably buy from a variety of third-party vendors that are plugged into that. You could have the extension of the kind of strange legacy marketplace on Magic Online where you have third-party vendors that are, that are basically in control of all the, the, the secondary market for the cards back into play. And that's really interesting, right? Because you have the magical online economy, which is a strange, unusual dinosaur, replaced by the arena economy, where Wizards has full control over all the secondary market. And then you'd be back into this new opportunity where they could go either way. They could maintain control of the secondary market like they do on NBA Top Shots and take a percentage of everything that gets sold, and that seems the most likely. Or they could do that plus open it up to third-party vendors and players being able to, at minimum, trade and possibly sell to one another. Uh, so, all right, let me make sure I understand this. You're seeing a- Arena essentially merging with a Google Glass-like technology that pretty much brings the digital version of magic to a augmented reality platform because i believe that the gathering is actually an important part of the brand and being able to uh maintaining the gathering the physical gathering has widespread benefit for the brand 
because social the more digital the world becomes the more social engagements are are going to be important people are going to want to do as they work more in the digital world and play more in the digital world they will absolutely need to carve out some actual social space in real world and an opportunity to engage with real people in person on the back of this augmented reality plot platform seems very likely to succeed. It's also possible that they could still charge us twice because one of the best, the biggest benefits for them about having digital plus paper is they can charge you twice for the same cards. So, so are you in this, sorry, I just want to make sure I understand your pitch here. You're imagining where there's the VR, the augmented reality version of magic, which is now the platform for magic online like digital magic is an augmented vr setup and then the paper world of magic has continued relatively the same sorry run that by me again is that is it you're you're saying magic online is now done via augmented reality but paper magic has remained relatively the same was that in my vision no yeah no no no. i'm saying paper magic is gone completely they stopped Oh, you, you, I'm sorry, I, I missed that. You said they wrote out paper magic entirely. Yeah, because you don't need it in this circumstance. If you're using augmented reality, what's the point of printing paper cards? Well, that's kind of what I was, was going to be my question if you said yes. So paper magic is discontinued, and the only magic people play is via augmented reality. Yeah, but you know what's interesting about it, though, is you can easily have a transitionary period if you build the software right. So if people are like, what? No fucking way. I like love my magic collection. Paper magic for life. You just say, okay, no problem. If you've got paper cards, you can bring them. And then what you probably need to do to support that hybrid play usage is you need to have a, a universal card that you can just get out of a dispensary. And that card just has um, like a special barcode or something on it. And then the software can recognize it as a wild card that is specifically connected to a piece, a card in your collection. So let's say that half your deck is real cards and half your deck is uh, magic cards that have a magic card back, same as before, but on the front, it, it has a special barcode. And then the augmented reality glasses just show you the deck uniformly applied. So you could actually like mix old cards and new and the digital friendly cards real easily with augmented reality. Um, and then eventually over time, certain formats would, you know, some formats would be all old cards and some formats would, you know, be played in all augmented. And as time went on, more and more of it would be augmented. And eventually they would just stop printing paper magic and they would become curiosities collectibles for uh that are keepsakes related to a digital brand um yeah this is um hmm. i find the concept fascinating i think i think augmented reality magic is plausible honestly i mean we talk about that and it sounds a little like something you would have seen in sci-fi movies in like the mid nineties, late nineties, like uh, total recall. I feel like it would have looked at home in that film. Um, I mean, that's also kind of similar to the chess scene in star Wars, right? Where uh, Luke is playing with Chewbacca. 
we did see technology similar to this, if you remember on PlayStation. Uh, I think it was PlayStation 3 they debuted it. Do you remember that card game that did this? Nope. The name I don't remember the name of it, but they used a... Um, it, it wasn't exactly the same, obviously, but it used a camera, and you would buy packs of cards that you would put on a you know a particular play surface like oh a, yes i vaguely, rem- I vaguely remember this now yeah and the camera would then read the card off the play mat and put it into the game and then you basically you know you, that's kind of how you played is um it was like playing any collectible card game but this camera scanned all the cards and put them into the video game and then the game played out there so you know we've kind of seen this is some rough concepts of this uh in the the real sphere. I mean, they pre demoed that at E3 on the main stage. That was a, they were trying to make that a thing. It didn't really take off. I guess, you know, if I divorce this from the timeline, the idea is very fascinating. I could definitely see where that plays out. Um, it, it wouldn't be, I mean, magic would be far from the only plat, only medium that only game to take advantage of that technology. Uh, well, that's the that's the other yeah. thing. If if anybody gets this working <laughs> on any other game, it will start a rush for the fire door to move in that direction. And I don't at all expect Wizards of the Coast slash Hasbro to lead the charge here. They could easily be five, ten years behind the curve, because they do have a you know the vast majority of their income and profit is still from the paper side of things especially now that we're moving into the premium era and they've figured out how to sell us more and more expensive versions of the product i mean we're looking at 400 booster boxes for the collector boosters from modern horizons 2 um they're definitely going to want to protect that income for as long as they can now could they transition that to digital yeah probably but you you might they might need to char- want to charge us a dual license. Like playing strictly online is X amount per card. And then if you want to activate that card for in-person play, it's an extra additional charge. Something along those lines. But wouldn't you go the other way? You would get it in paper and then you could activate it online for an additional charge? No, because I think if you move to a, moving to a world where primarily the brand is digital, then more of... You might have things might inverse more of the play might be online and less of it is in person, but there's still people that like to, you know, more of the older players are, are more into the in-person play. And there might be a, a model where you have, you know, only 40% of the amount of LGS still exists, but they're really cool places to hang out and, and interact and play with the, and play with this technology. And there are some really cool benefits for magic. Once you're operating inside that model, one of the benefits is you gain the digital only uh, no more bannings option that, say, games like Hearthstone have, where if they have a problematic card, they just change the casting cost or change the effect. Oko, your Okos aren't ruined. They're just Oko costs four now. Or Oko has a minus, not a, not a double plus. And that's really good. And you can also fix broken formats a lot faster by... In, in a variety of ways by re- retuning what's available in draft packs you can you know if if nobody's drafting uh prismari and strixie even draft you can issue a patch and fix that like you get all the benefits of of digital gaming so 
it fixes a lot of problems. You also get rid of the foil complaints. You get get rid of the quality control problems. You get to cut out all of the operational expenses of physically printing, transporting, uh, and all of that. So that whole physical supply chain collapses, um, which doesn't hurt Wizards any because that's all third-party stuff that they have to pay extra for. I... Uh... I mean, that's all true. I mean, you know, in a world where magic doesn't exist on paper, it lets them make a lot of fixes and changes that, you know, Rune Terror and Hearthstone get to do that magic doesn't. I, I, this is all sounds very nifty. Uh, I think it's a very optimistic perspective. Um, well, I originally pitched this to I, you as magic 2025 and then I moved it back to yeah. magic 2030 and honestly, it could be anywhere between five and 15 years. And a lot of it depends on the advancement of technology. If technology, if, if you don't see quantum computing in common usage for 15 years, or massive advancements in uh, human machine hybridization, then all this stuff will move slower. If Google has a chip in people's necks in six years, then things will move a lot faster. I, yeah, the timeline is is uh, is rough here. I I will tell you that if I'm wizards, I all of this sounds nifty and, I, and it seems like a possible avenue. But to I think writing out paper cards is the worst thing wizards could do. I think, and and you kind of touched on this, where you said, you know, as things as things are more and more digital, that the non-digital experiences become more and more valuable. And I think that's one of Wizards' greatest strengths and Magic's greatest strengths is that it, it exists through that timeline. And I mean, most of the, I mean, EDH is a dominant format. It's what it's what keeps most players invested in buying cards and 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 playing the game. And those are also the people that want to get together with their buddies and hang out. And that that's such a different experience than playing digitally that being able to play with real cards is just cool. And it gives you that tactile sensation that you don't get anywhere else. So, I, you know, obviously we can't speak to what Wizards will or won't do, but I think they'd be shooting themselves in the foot to get rid of the paper component entirely. Sure, but... Sure, I but think keep, they should lean into it more than Sure, anything. but keep in mind, I'm not saying that the physical component's gone. In, in my model, you can still shuffle up your deck, and you can use real, a mixture of real cards and physical cards that are blank on the front except for an, a code. And so you're, I, you're still getting the I shuffle, I'm shuffling my DH deck thing going on, and you're still... Um, but the difference is when your buddy playing EDH with you casts Fireball a fireball flies across the table and hits your friend in the chest. Well, that that's where I think the, you know, if you were to see this take place, where it would really happen is everyone would still own paper cards. You would still show up to the, you would still show up with full paper cards. There wouldn't be really blanks. Everything would have to be a real card. Um, but you might have foils and then you might have like foil... Uh, well, the the, the new holog- well, that, well, hold you on, got you'd, it. Have you've got, you'd have say it. 
You'd have yes. holographic yes. versions, which, which like, okay, this isn't just an eternal witness. This is an eternal witness that when I play it, I get the, you know, animation inspired, like arena does right with their special mythics and shit like that. It would have that built into some of those cards. So they'd be an extra premium version of the card that you got that when you put it into play, your Google glass would trigger this yeah. effect. That seems like the best way to implement it because they get to sell you the paper cards. And they get to make you chase the cool ones with the additional effects, uh, but it still keeps everything in people's hands. It doesn't invalidate their old collections. Uh, and it, it's a relatively seamless integration with all of this new technology and allows all that stuff to play with um, their existing library to play with this new stuff, especially when you consider that if the technology on that gets good enough, you don't need special cards. Like I could play a... Urza Saga, uh, Baron, Master Wizard, and the, the technology is good enough that it recognizes it and they can still make a custom animation for it. I don't need a special barcode on the card for it yeah. to work because it can just read the old Yeah, art. there's so much in there that's so sexy, right? Because as you said, you can start selling people the 3D animation premium version of a card they already own. Like, that's the dream, dude. This guy bought this card 20 years ago. You're going to sell him an upgrade. It doesn't get any better than that. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's already some analogs, slight analogs worth flagging in the market. I don't know if you know this, but in for the Strixhaven products in Japan and in APAC region, there are uh, sleeves that augment the border of your cards that are being distributed. It's only an Asia thing for Strixhaven. Um so hmm. that already that already exists. And this is and if you look at Arena, they already have it, you know how the mythics have like the effects when they come into play, like the animation, like if you summon a dragon, the dragon flies across the screen and screams. This is this is mm-hmm. the natural evolution of that. And you make that the premium, like you have the foil cards that look shiny in the augmented reality that that maybe like have a little bit of depth to them, and then you have the 3D version where the character literally pops up out of the card and walks around on the table. And that has so much potential because right now, like you don't really care like what versions of cards your friends bring to the table. Like you don't care if your buddy's deck is worth $500 or $5,000 or $50,000. It doesn't change your play experience much. But if people's tricked out decks are cooler to play against, <laughs> Buddy, that's that's Wizard's dream right there. Because then the social pressure is everybody should upgrade their deck as much as possible so that it does super cool things. Because you want mm-hmm. like somebody's fibble thip to like stumble around and look lost on the table for about fifteen seconds before he crawls back into his card. Like <laughs> that would be so fun to see you know the characters you know and love come to life. And that as time goes on, people's decks get more and more funny and interesting. And that is an additional shared experience over and above what you can get in a purely digital space like Arena or VR. Yeah, it's, it is very nifty. I, I, I do kind of wonder that this doesn't place, take place in a vacuum. You know, the, the competition is going to be fierce uh, for what you can get away with. So I hear this type of thing and I'm like, okay, but what are other brands going to be doing with the technology? Cause probably in the same way that like, sure you can sit down and play magic on your computer and magic is a very good game, which is why people sit down and play it 
but what magic does digitally is a joke compared to what everyone else does yep. digitally. Like the digital component makes magic worse and you tolerate it to play magic. So when you're out in the world with your VR glasses, uh, magic is still a very good game. Are you <laughs> like, but what are other people doing with that technology that aren't, isn't, aren't tied to this existing game model that, that exists? Um, you know, they can do some other very interesting things. Well, well, let me give you an like... example with a Hasbro brand. Let's talk about D&D for a second. Augmented reality D&D would be amazing. But, yeah, like I already think that augmented D&D is a much better idea than augmented It's magic. so hot because augmented reality D&D could literally be played anywhere. Mm-hmm. Because you use this software interface on your mobile device, laptop, whatever, to roll your stats build your character you know track your gear and whatever and then the augmented reality just puts that shit in your friend's hand so like your friend can just pick up anything they can just pick up a stick and the augmented reality software knows that it's supposed to be the sword of fire and ice and shows it like freezing on one side and burning on the other and the two of you are just walking around a park but the augmented reality just goes okay that tree is a tree ant it's it just came to life it's fighting you and you see the tree like turn into an animation of a tree and run towards you it's gonna be fucking nuts and you see a bunch of nerds in cargo shorts and and four-year-old video game t-shirts hitting trees with sticks in the park wearing these big glasses on their face and (laughs) yeah yeah i mean but like so so that this is kind of what i'm talking about is like augmented reality D D sounds so much more interesting like you can be sitting at a bar or whatever or, you know, someone's living room and you, your buddy showed up in jeans and a t-shirt. But when you look at him, you see him in the elf get up because it's, you know, superimposed the, the outfit of his character on him. And, you know, you can get, I don't know if you saw those Minecraft VR demos, like the tabletop demos where, you know, you're wearing the glasses and you look at this tabletop and Minecraft comes, you know, is a 3D hologram in front of you on the table. And you can do that with your D&D board. You know, what you described sounds almost more like LARPing, right? Running around in a park fighting trees. Whereas this is like, well, we can sit around the table with a beer and, you know, the table surface is clear in real life. And then when you look through your glasses, the like board, Mm -hmm. the model comes alive. And it's kind of like playing a tabletop simulator, except it's in in, in your eyeballs. Well, Um, that's just it, right? Like that that will be the other option for D&D is the augmented reality tabletop version will be very much like the magic version instead of cards you're just going to have miniatures and mazes and you know that you'll literally see the little cartoon version of you open the chest get hit by the trap recover the treasure then the beholder pops up behind them etc etc yeah and and you know D has just such a different legacy of physical components of the nature of the game the way people engage with it like it just seems like essentially better aligned to this type of well, Medium well there's cool there's cool magic. spin-offs too right because like the larping version of D, where you and your buddies are in the park you can link that to fitness software you can be like we're gonna go hike the uh grouse grind in vancouver which is like an infinite staircase like at a 40 degree angle up a huge mountain and turn it into a whole thing like you can <laughs> you can be like the, the goblins are chasing you and you look back over your shoulder and they're fucking gaining on you because you're going too slow and so you get like a whole like fitness component too and then at the top of the mountain you 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 like rest you're doing your rest component and you like you like get your hit points back or whatever and then you move on to a like more chill thing while you have a picnic up there like there is a lot of shit you can do it 
it is funny that you say that, that you kind of talk about it that way too, because there was this sort of consideration like when the Wii first popped Wii up. Wii Fit, yeah. And well, and not just Wii Fit, but just like Wii games in general. Oh, I, I guess there was a bit of an expectation that it was going to move towards video games, all video games being very physical. They were going to get tiring. This was going to usher in a new era of like fitness oriented video games. Um, and all this technology was going to kind of transform the way people play games. And it didn't really. Um, I mean, the Wii had its moments. It was very nifty. We, def- we definitely played certainly... a bunch of Dance Dance Revolution at my dad's house. Oh, sure. I mean, it's not to say that people didn't do it, but I, I very vividly remember what people thought the future of gaming was going sure. to look like when that technology was really breaking out. And it sure did not pl- turn out that way. It just became, there are some good titles that we play in this capacity and they're fun and they're interesting, but that's, you know, people still predominantly sit down. If you're going to play a video game, you probably just sit down on your couch with a controller or sit down in front of your computer and play it. Um, that's what you're doing basically. And you know, you have your outliers where you're doing something different. Uh, and I, I would expect that to still be the same, uh, even with that technology, like sure people will LARP with, with that stuff and they'll enjoy it. And there will be a, you know, some titles will exist where you get to do, you know, what you're talking about. But for the most part, people are just going to sit there in a bar or at their friend's house and, you know, have it all happen in front of them, but they're not going to move because that's the other work. sick part of it is that you gain remote play hybridization. So for you and three buddies were planning on playing together on a Friday night, but Bob ducked out at the last minute and said, oh, he's going to be late from work. By the time he gets home and has a shower, it's going to be too late. And you're like, fuck it, just log on from home. And the three of you sit down at the table. And by the time you get through the first game, Bob's at home at his place like an hour across town but he just logs on, and when you look down at the table, you can see him playing his cards. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's actually... Oh, God, we were talking about something, and I remember talking about this years ago, and I don't remember what the precipitating factor was, but I was at a wedding, and I had just re- been reading about something, and I was like, well, they're going to... Ins- I'm like, imagine right now because oh, we, we were looking at the videographer at this wedding who was videotaping stuff and and i had seen something about some technology with cameras or and vr cameras and i was like you know when you go to your um, we were you know 30 25 25 30 years old at the time and talking to other people and i said when you're when you go to your kid's wedding you're not going to have a videographer they're going to set up vr cameras in the corners of the room and what's going to happen is it's going to take a VR recording of this event. And you won't go home and watch a video of it. You'll go home and experience the virtual reality of the wedding and be able to walk around the entire room amongst the guests in VR as the wedding plays out. So you don't have one camera angle, you have infinite because you can stand anywhere in the room and watch this thing happen. Uh, you know, and that'll be that would be awesome because then you can just relive your wedding well, then, however you and want, you'll have, and also listen, also listen to people's conversations that you couldn't hear during the well, wedding. And there'll be and, there'll be filters, you, right? Like there'll be privacy filters that people will be able to turn up or down when they opt into that recording process. There'll be drunkenness filters where, like, when you show the video to your parents, you turn the drunkenness <laughs> filter way down. <laughs> when you show it to your your friends, you want to show them like how hardcore the party got at the end when you were all dancing together and the old people had retired for the evening. And yeah, there'll be a bunch of interesting things that go on with with 
modified memory like yeah but and that's you know that's that's starting to get kind of blade runnery but my my point is that um yeah i mean if if the tech not you know if you're talking about this sort of augmented reality stuff it could become advanced enough where not only do you have your vr headset you have a couple webcams that come with it you set them up around your desk in your room and now everyone who's playing puts on a vr headset of some sort and they can you know you're still seeing the table in front of you but your buddy who's at home is in the in the chair across from you and yep. you know, you're viewing him digitally yeah. you know there's options for that too i i don't think any of this is 10 years away by the I, way i mean for the most part this stuff is further away i think you know realistically you'd be looking at probably three to six years before we see anything similar to Google Glass really on the market again and how much longer will it take for wizards to get <laughs> back on top of it I mean that feels like like a 15 it, it, as soon as you add the the wizards filter to it the, the timeline automatically extends given like how long it took them to get off magic online but the yeah it's interesting because the last 10 years of technological development has not been super interesting you basically have the the inroad of the the mobile computer as opposed to the cell phone but in many other ways personal technology has not made huge leaps and strides <clears throat> but if you look at from say the mid 70s to the mid 80s the advent of the personal computer you had a tremendous and the and then you know the mid 80s to the mid 90s in terms of the advent of the internet you had massive advancements so it's entirely possible that we're a bit biased by how the last 10 years have gone. And if there could easily be some major breakthroughs in the next five years that catapult things forward. Yeah, it, that's that's definitely tricky. Uh, I agree that technology improvements have slowed down. Um, I mean, this is uh, obvious to anyone who has uh, was big into computer gaming. Um because it used to be that every couple of years you really felt like your computer was out of date. You know, you wanted to upgrade your your graphics card about every four years because you you like literally couldn't play the new games. Your computer just couldn't run them. Uh, but I was on a 970 GTX, which is like an eight year card or seven year old card or something like that. And I replaced it last year only because the whole computer was breaking down, but it was still playing like triple uh, A titles that wasn't playing them at the highest resolution, but it didn't matter. I was still playing them. And let me to, to get that type of lifespan out of a video card was unheard of back in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands. So I, I would agree that technology is <laughs> the, the way it has advanced has been less significant and, and slower, I guess, than it feels like it should have been. And also a lot more dystopian in its application. <laughs> yes. Which is why when we think about like, wow, think about how great this could be in the future with like magic. And it's going to be like, sure, this all sounds good. But what's really going to happen is everyone's going to have a different model. The resolutions will be kind of wonky. So some of them will look good and some of them won't be that good. And it doesn't work unless all of us are doing it. And Jim's headset isn't really working correctly. So we can't use it. There'll be a, but, there'll be a forced uh, well, McDonald's commercial like during your snack break. Yeah, we all, and, and we, yeah, exactly. There'll be commercials and, oh, you know, this is the, you bought the cheap version of Birds of Paradise. So when you play it, there's a Chicken McNugget ad that plays. 
Yeah, I mean, there's just so many factors like this. It just feels like <laughs> it would sort of ruin the experience or make it a lot less exciting than it sounds like to talk about, which is why I said this, you know, this version that you pitched here sounds very good, but it also sounds like something we would have seen in a sci-fi movie in the 90s, not what would actually happen. In real so ultimately, life. the question we're going to get from pro traders is in this scenario, what do I do with my paper collection? Like what plans do I make around it? Um, because even if they don't do this stuff, there's still a, always been a potential. And people, when they announced Arena, people started talking about the death of paper magic. And of course, that has doesn't look, so far, doesn't look like we're anywhere near that. Like, they're making more on paper than they ever who, have. I don't know who, I don't remember people saying that, but they were dumb if they said that. I don't know why you would think Arena would. People definitely did, and I definitely magic. said, listen, there's no way they're giving up two revenue streams. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think that this augmented version only becomes attractive to them if they can figure out how to maintain the same revenue stream. If they think they can go broader, because people need to understand that the business model ARPU, the average revenue per user for Arena is worse than on Magic Online. People don't get that. They make less money per person because it's easier to kite and play for free on Arena than it was on Magic Online where everything was ticket-based. So, for instance, I've never spent a dime on Arena. Never. Me neither. Other than the, whatever the first five dollars, whatever it was to to get in, but I just fiddle around here and there. I don't like if I can build a constructed deck, cool. But if I can't, I just build something jank, and I never worry about like getting all the cards from a given set so that I can build whatever I want. Now, why did they do go to an inferior business model? Because they thought it would go wider. They were hoping to have Hearthstone level success where they would pull in a bunch of people that weren't necessarily magic players. And that's been successful to a degree, but probably I would guess that they have not hit the targets that they pitched in the original meetings. So they're doing, they're doing well, but I don't think they're doing amazing. And to move on to something like an augmented reality, you have to convince the powers that be that you can still do 600 million a year in that scenario. Now, if that came to pass, and let's say it was going to happen in 10 years exactly, it was going to launch, there is a transition period, the software does support the paper cards, and always will, but they, they I think the solution there is that they, they sell you the, the animation add-ons for cards you already own. That's just fucking brilliant. Like They would make so much money doing that. Um, that I think that paper doesn't die in that scenario if they do it smartly it just becomes a mixed usage thing that slowly over time shifts towards the digital and i wouldn't be sweating it at all if i knew for a fact it was happening in 10 years i would probably change the the nature of of what i was you know what i was planning on collecting on the off chance that the hobby collapsed or that they fucked it up like i wouldn't be worried so much about that there wouldn't be any demand for paper cards so much as I would worry that they would wreck the interest in the brand completely by fumbling the whole thing. Like if they led themselves down a dead end and failed, <laughs> which is entirely possible, like they had already announced the stopping of printing paper cards and they launched this whole project and it's just unplayable. Like everybody throws up when they try to play it. <laughs> well then, yeah, that would be problematic. If I knew that was coming, then I would try to get out you know, three years ahead of time or something. Um, If Uh, I thought that they would competently execute and support paper in that model, I wouldn't worry about it at all. 
because it could easily cast a broader net. Yeah, I uh, it, it, it's all a very interesting thought experiment. Um, you know, there's also, as I had kind of mentioned in the past, uh, I think climate change remains a very serious consideration. Not printing paper could be a could be a law based. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, if, if in my imagination, it's less of that and more of uh, people don't care about playing magic when they're fighting. You know, well, basic if we're in World War Four, the water issue. wars, um, right? Canada has been invaded four times because we have all the water. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm talking about. So the timeline that we're you're talking about kind of bumps into the timeline for that. So I mean, I obviously don't have an answer. The, but the good news about all the end of times scenarios or world war climate catastrophe type scenarios is not your collectibles don't matter much at all you don't you don't need to worry about them and it's very unlikely that you're going to sell out of your collect collectibles at the correct time to build your bunker (laughs) right well yeah and you'd remember mentioned i had mentioned this before i had talked about climate and magic and my point and you know we'd kind of walked away like well you should you always be keeping an eye on like the five-year horizon uh because if it looks like things are really starting to tip like you should start getting out sooner rather than later because you you know it doesn't really matter how valuable your magic cards are if uh you've got 100 grand worth of cards that nobody can play with because they're too busy interested in water it's just something to be aware of i suppose that's a very grim way of looking at things but i think it's important to keep some perspective i agree all right, we've uh, ran wide and far this evening. I think we're we're good for episode two sixty eight. Where can people find you online, Travis Allen? I remain on Twitter at Wizard Bumpin B U M P I N. You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MTGPrice.com. Uh, I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mggprice.com Pro Trader service for just $9.99 a month or $99.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is probably sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool stuff in stock, including the best in Magic the Gathering single sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast, which brings us to the end of episode 268. Uh, join us next week for 269, uh, where we will have all sorts of good conversations again i am sure thank you traps we'll see y'all next week on another episode of mtg fast finance